Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Here it comes again, lunch. Will it be the same old, same old? Or are you ready to take a vacation from the ordinary with the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub at Firehouse Subs? Freshly sliced smoked turkey breast, craveably sweet mustard sauce, and a hint of Caribbean seasoning. Just $5.55 for a medium. Save time. Order the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub on the Firehouse Subs app. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Participating locations. Limited time only. Plus tax. Prices may vary for delivery. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I am your co-host, Christopher Mukigana Harrington, joined by my north, by northeast, by Mr. Brandon Thurston Howard. Brandon, how are you today? I'm wonderful, Moki. You have just returned from Denmark, right? I have, which is why I've, I've reverted to uh, BTH instead of BHT mode. Okay. Um, it's the European way of, of saying your name. In Europe, do they uh, change the order of the names? Is, is it, the it, middle name not kinda, in the middle? And... It's kind of like the date format, you know? You gotta Everything's different in Europe. Okay. Everything has a fish sauce somehow snuck inside of it, even when you think you're eating delicious chocolate, then there'll be salted licorice in the middle for all you know. So Is that something that happened to you recently? Oh, it happens all the time if you go to Denmark. Instead of like chocolatier shops, they have lic- licorice shops there. They love their licorice that much that they have like premier licorice powder shops and whatnot. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's uh, an experience for sure. But um, you've also been traveling around the world. I have. How was your? How was the tour of Thurston? I've been uh, I've been accused of going on a W tryout of uh, scouting for New Japan USA. Actually, I ended up going with like my my mom and my aunt to New Orleans, and then. Uh, but I also, uh oh, someone's ringing my doorbell. <laughs> you need to get. Why don't you go get that? Right, let, me, let me see what this is. Fascinating insight into the life of Brandon Howard Thurston. Will he accept the package? Will he understand that he has just been cited and summoned to arrive in the courtroom at 9 a.m. and accept charges? Hello? Oh, yes. How was your... Have um, you been talking this whole time? I, I started commentating after a few seconds. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm curious. So is were you served properly by the uh, the court or did they have to... Uh, they, what they, happened? They have served me with my uh, my vegan protein for the month that I get on a subscription from Amazon. Oh, I hope I don't wake up Alexa. But uh, there we go. No, I went to New Orleans. Well, I went to... Florida to visit. Uh, I've mentioned before that I, we, I share a Netflix and uh, Hulu account with an ex-girlfriend. And uh, so I went to go visit her on a very platonic. Was, uh, was it time for the annual annual um, negotiation about who gets to watch what? Yeah, we share a, a, a cell phone bill as well. So we had to have those meetings and uh, spontaneously decided to go to uh, New Orleans with my mom. It happened to be for like a ophthalmology, I don't know, conference or something. So we went, we went and saw her for like a couple of days, but I'm finally back 
W has not hired me, and uh, I, d- I didn't find many venues for uh, New Japan. I'm here to uh, hopefully talk about WrestleNomics. I'm not sure how prepared we are, but we'll do our best. That That is true. I uh, flew back on Thursday after an all-day flight, and uh, I was served a pickled vegetable lattice pastry on my SAS flight, which I was not pleased with. What and, is that? Uh, I will s- it, it, it's exactly what Scandinavian, Scandinavian Airlines suggests it is. It is a pickled vegetable lattice pastry. Imagine a hot pocket of sadness. That is pretty much what it is. Yeah. So how long of a flight is that though? Like how long were you uh, traveling? On the way back, it's a nine-hour flight just to go from uh, Copenhagen to Chicago. Wow. So that was the majority of my trip. Wow. And then originally I was supposed to go through DC, but. Uh, they had screwed up the times for the plane, so I was going to miss my connecting flight. And then when I tried to rebook, they're like, we don't have any flights leaving D.C. on Friday. And I was like, I don't think that's true, but <laughs> I'm just going to rebook in a different way. So I got home safe and did a show on Friday night for a comedy and promptly went on stage with my zipper down in the first Did you like, really? Yeah. <laughs> did anybody tell you? Oh, yeah, yeah. The uh, improvisers came up and tried to whisper in my ear, at which point it was kind of like, well, what do you do? That is, uh, it's very conspicuous at that point if you just suddenly grab your crotch. And of course, I had been um, making many motions and gestures towards my math t-shirt that I was wearing at the time. So I had been almost directing the audience towards uh, my my private parts. So it was a... uh, Eventually, my my long term comedy partner um, actually came on stage and zipped it up for me, oh. so I did not have to make that decision. So that's what friends are for. That's very nice. Yeah. So delightful stories abound uh, here on WrestleNomics Radio. We are back. We promised to be uh, weekly if we hit our our goal. We apologize for not uh, necessarily being able to do that this past week, but we did put out two episodes. We did put out an episode last week, and then we put out an episode ostensibly of this past week where we did the uh, WrestleNomics uh, Wrestling Hall of Fame chatter. Um, didn't hear much feedback from that <laughs> except for – uh, to say that, you know, I know some people listen to it and they, you know, I'm sure they feel similarly. I didn't get a lot of hate mail or anything, you know, saying that, you know, how dare you vote for Hayabusa or something like that. So at least, you know, you can feel good about that. Yes. But uh, what we're, we're, you know, feeling really bad for right now is Mr. George Berrios because um, it appears that uh, uh, some of the pieces of the puzzle of the structure of the Jenga tower that he has built – around the BRIC countries right now, specifically India, uh, isn't maybe not, not going so well because uh, they, they had to condense the number of Indian shows that they're doing right now, and uh, Jinder Mahal's no longer our champion. Some pretty big changes. Yeah, it's, to meet the requests of fans in India, they've decided to consolidate their two shows into one super show. So you see, this is really, it, it's, a, it's an even bigger deal now, Chris. Don't, don't you see that? Yeah, yeah. No, that's true. Like, uh, instead of getting... You know, three uh, Star Wars movies. When they only give you two, you're like, "Oh, I'm so much happier." Yes. Well, it's, it's less that you have to con- less less content that you have to consume now. But yeah, I I I think I said maybe a couple of weeks ago. You know, I, maybe uh, maybe Voices of Wrestling or Joe Lanza was talking on Twitter about you know Jinder Mahal again, and um, I I said, well, we'll get a, a good sense. We'll we'll get a good test when they actually go to India for these two India shows that they're going to do in New Delhi. Am I saying that right? And um, and now we know the two shows in, in New Delhi are not going to be two shows. They're going to be one show. So that certainly leads you to believe and to speculate that um, maybe the advance wasn't very good. And so they decided to cut it from one to two or from two to one rather. Well, and they decided to move the title over, right? So uh, they had AJ beat Jinder. 
Um, it was a match that I was actually able to watch. Um, and I, I really enjoyed actually, I thought it proved the limitations of gender very much in my book because that seemed to me like, you know, this was your opportunity to have the really good match. And AJ did everything he could in his power to try to make it a good match. And it still was just a fine match. (laughs) Um, and, but, but, you know, to me, a lot of people read really, really, really deep into this. I saw it more as a storyline. You know, you, you, the storyline has a beginning, a middle, and an end. We're basically at the end of it now. Um, I fully suspect Jinder Mahal will be interfering during the AJ Styles versus Brock Lesnar match. And, you know, they'll carry something on a little bit longer. But it, it, it I don't look s- like they were really going to do a Jinder Mahal and Brock Lesnar match. And then it seems some, some plans changed for some reason. Because do you feel that way? I, I don't feel that it was the plan to announce and advertise Jinder Mahal versus Brock Lesnar, but then change their mind. I would say between when the point that Jinder Mahal versus Brock Lesnar was booked and when we got to that point, something changed because the video package and the way they pushed on a raw was certainly something that made it seem like it was going to be in that direction. I don't think it was a day of decision. I don't think it was like a only on Tuesday they made this decision. But, um, you know, it takes time to put all those video packages together. and, And of course, that's being done back in corporate. And they're on the road in Europe and, you know, emotions change, people change, ideas change. Um, I think it helped for sure that SmackDown show in the UK from a ratings standpoint and from a watching standpoint because I read the spoilers and I made a conscious decision to watch the show. And I don't believe I'm alone in that. And then the ratings were up for this episode of SmackDown. Is that right? Uh, I believe they were at least at the same level. So yeah, yeah, they were they were doing well, and it's it's fascinating to me. I mean, it's it's intriguing to see how you know that relationship between USA and WWE can be. Um, I think you have an interesting Edge quote here that I, I thought you should share. Mm-hmm. Uh, Edge went on his uh, his podcast with Christian. He he made the point that well. Maybe one of the reasons why they did the title change was because they have this new show, which is called Damnation, that was debuting right after SmackDown that night. And uh, what, what did he say here? He said, I think there are probably a few factors, and I think USA Network was debuting a new TV series, and he's referring to Damnation. And while some of you may scoff at, at it, I, you know, WWE wouldn't change their business for that, but The Shooter was debuting, and uh, they when SmackDown was doing the 900th episode, and that's why he said you know, Edge was there and Undertaker was there. I, I don't, I don't really believe him though. I think. Um, oh well, but one thing he's, he's talking about mind. a title change. You know, you don't advertise a t- You don't advertise that the, the title is going to change hands. You advertise a title match, and then you find out whether the title changes hands or not. Yeah, but I, I still would say they give a top level show. So maybe the decision to put AJ versus Gender, which was you know they promoted it pretty heavy leading up to it. Mm-hmm. Maybe that was part of this decision. Damnation is going to have a a uh, guest star. In a few weeks on the show, you know who that is? Luke Harper? Luke Harper is is acting in Damnation as a cirque, circus carny, basically, uh, like a stretcher, um, which will be really interesting. And uh, again, it's, it's intriguing to see kind of a different talent getting a push here. We've seen, you know, a lot of Randy Orton's making his his episode uh, on Shooter and other things that I think he's been in, but it, and The Miz. But this is kind of interesting to see Luke Harper, someone who also has done a horror movie um, uh, that some has some indie distribution, though I've never I have not seen it yet. Um, but it was interesting to see that. Um, the fact also that they had the the thirty for thirty for Ric Flair. 
I think that was really tough for them because essentially they wanted people to stay and watch Damnation. But at the same time, there's a Ric Flair documentary debuting on ESPN, and it's kind of hard not to tell those SmackDown fans, hey, you should go check that out. So I do think they were also competing with another another channel that was going to be airing wrestling programming. And that that also wasn't a factor, but yeah, they could, I, I they don't could have know. Just as well had a, a Jim Hall versus AJ Styles match and had Gender retain the title. Yes, so I I would agree. I think the fact that they booked the title match was because they wanted to make sure they had a strong program. I don't think they booked the title change because of that. I think they just booked the title change because ultimately all the factors and the things that they were looking at made it clear that maybe that's a much better story. And and I think it's a much better story. I think it makes a lot more sense to do AJ versus Brock Lesnar with Jinder Mahal interfering. Um, I think it makes a lot more sense to say that if your business is only going to spend one day or two days every two years in a live territory, that maybe you don't need to worry about that. I think the fact, you know what they replaced that Indian house show with? No, with what? It's a second um, Middle East house show, um, I think in a UAE or something. And so, yeah, and and they make decent money on those Abu Dhabi shows. Those are are like bought shows, right? Probably pay for by really rich people. Uh, Or or I don't think it's really rich people. I think it's a, you know, um, a lot of times the government will pay for it or, you know, it is really rich. There is live (laughs) tickets. Well, yeah, yeah, I guess that is true. Yes. But I mean, like it's it's a um, like a sports ministry might pay for the show or it's an advertiser might pay for the show and then they still sell tickets. And so I think that money then goes back to, you know, the person who is actually promoting the show. But oftentimes WWE gets a flat fee for those shows. And so, um, you know, they're happy to do those shows and, and keep that kind of relationship going. So it's not even it's very plausible, though, to to think that at least a factor in this was. Here they're looking at the the advance for these new deli shows, and the advance doesn't look very strong. And they're like, "Well, all right, this, you know, we're not about to sell tens of thousands of tickets here with Jinder Mahal in India now because we made him the Indian, you know, the uh, Indian champion or whatever." So, I'm not saying that that was, you know, who, there's probably a number of factors that go into a decision like that, but it, it could have been one. Oh yeah, and and the fact that. It doesn't make a difference who's the champion going into that show unless you're you're refunding tickets beforehand. You know, it's it's kind of like the tickets are sold, the merch, the live merch is going to be a one day merch thing, and yeah, maybe it'll be up, maybe it'll be a little bit down. But for the most part, I think the fans are just going to be excited to see WWE, and they're going to be excited to see Jinder Mahal um, in whatever position he is. And and right now they've changed the card around, so Triple H is wrestling him. Um, Triple H being kind of the um, the fix it guy right now, right? He he comes into the South American tour when Kevin Owens leaves. He comes into the uh, the Europe tour when Reigns can't be there, and now he's coming into uh, the Indian tour when uh, Jinder Mahal needs a new opponent. So it's kind of been interesting to see uh, Triple H's resurgence this year as a re- as an actual in ring competitor. Um, whenever they need to add a, another body to the card, that's right. He's put on the shield vest. Yeah, and and to the same thing, you know, I. Do wonder if they would have Jinder go over Triple H in India? I would think so in some way. Yeah, I think they would. Um, uh, I I don't think that would be true on the rest of the tour necessarily. No, <laughs> I, I do think this is something where you know they really are looking for things in that market that they can do. And you know, we also see uh, what is it, Jeet Rama or whoever is also going to be on that card? Yeah, Jeet Rama and, and Kishan Rafter versus the Miztourage. Yep. And um, if if you're not familiar with those two guys, it's they're NXT guys that are big tall indians one was a 
I'm going to say the sport wrong. It's not kebabi, kadabi. It's like a, a weird wrestling, Indian wrestling sport that's really popular. And um, they might have both been stars in that now that I think about it. The other might have been a weightlifter if I, I can't remember right or a wrestler. But, yeah, they're both really big Indian guys and uh, once again getting a shot there. and So that will be interesting. Um, yeah, we've seen them know, do, do similar in the China shows where, they, where they're doing their Beijing show or whatever it is and they'll bring in Tan Bing and have him wrestle Bo Dallas or whatever. And, and in fact, Bo Dallas is part of the Mustarage. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> so maybe Bo Dallas is your, your go-to yeah. guy. But they're I, I do international think, put-over duty. Yeah, I do think that this is a great example of, you know, one of those examples where an analyst could be challenging WWE and saying, hey, you told me India was the future. You told me Indian marketplaces is the reason we're doing all this stuff. And at the same time, you couldn't even sell out two nights in this country, and you don't go there very often. So it's not like you can say that you're oversaturated. You could say that maybe it's just too expensive because you know it's a country where um, you're, you're charging a lot for tickets. They're not really used to paying a lot for tickets unless it's for like cricket or um, occasionally football. But it's it's not even that popular in those sort of things. Sometimes they're free shows, if anything. And you know you're making all your money on TV rights, but those are guaranteed. And your WWE network service is, you know, tiny there, if anything. So it's it's very interesting to me. You know, a lot of people talking about the demonization that's gone on in India. We don't need to get too deep on that, except for to say there is a lot of fiscal turmoil and changes that have happened in India over the last couple of years here. And a lot of questions about whether the GDP would go up or go down or stay flat. And mainly flat or down is when, you know, people thought the impact of all this would be. We could talk but, about um, the, the ticket prices, though. That uh, Yeah. Yeah. So what is what is what is the cheapest to like a good seat cost? The, the cheapest seat is about twenty five dollars and, and really good seats are about five hundred and twenty dollars. Um, Wow, so that's you know I just bought my WrestleMania tickets, yeah. and I paid two fifty a piece. Yeah, and I think for, we, f- we found. Oh, oh, you bought your WrestleMania tickets? I did buy them. Sorry, I, I should have. I should have coordinated with you so we could have sat closer. But uh, that's fine. Yeah, uh, and uh, so they, and we, I think we found out the average income for for the average person who lives in New Delhi is something like four thousand three hundred dollars a year. So, yes. So you're saying that basically you'd be spending so maybe somewhere between an eighth to a a eightieth uh, uh, of your so income, probably like a, a tenth of the, what the average American probably makes. So if you think about like you know the typical person in this country buying buying a ticket, is it right to think about about it this way? It's just like multiply that by ten. So like two hundred a cheap seat is like would be like me buying a two hundred fifty dollar ticket. I don't think so because I think this is the difference between mean and median. Um, because you're implying that essentially that we're taking a cross section of Indian culture and then saying that's the group that wants to go to a WWE house show. Whereas I would argue the people that see it on television would have to be, you know, in a certain social strata and income strata for them to already be getting whatever the service is if it's not on free TV, which I don't really think it is. So, you know, you really should be looking at the subsection of them. So I I don't think it's. I think it's expensive, but I don't think it's ridiculously expensive um, for the group that's going. Now, I think it's ridiculously ambitious to think you can get two nights worth of people of that strata interested in coming out to your show. And um, clearly they they agreed for one reason or another. And I do think that the the talent themselves, you know, after a viral meningitis scare, do you think India is the first place they want to go back to? After um, 
all the other travel and a European tour, which, you know, exhausts people. Do you think India is the first place they want to fly back to? And so they're already going to the Middle East. So it's not like they're not going to be overseas, but um, it's demanding, you know. And I do think that the the people themselves aren't necessarily bought in. And this is something I was thinking a lot about today is that there's a big difference between when the strategy comes from bottom and the strategy comes from the top. And what I mean by that is sometimes a corporate company can say, our new strategy is to focus on blank. And all the people underneath that are like, cool, I'm glad that that's what you're telling investors. But what does that mean for me in my day-to-day life? And does that really line up with what I do every day and what I think about and how I get paid? And what I what I fear what has happened with, with WWE is that they've gone so heavy into this international is the key in the future. But they never really sold the wrestlers on it. And so I think it's really tough for the wrestlers to kind of understand what's in it for me for India to be a big hit, right? Because it's TV rights. They don't get a cut of the TV rights. It's WWE Network. They don't get a cut of WWE Network. It's merchandise, but that's actually going to sold shop. And we don't know what they cut, get kind of cut they get of that. It's not a big video game market for them right now. Um, and so all they get is a whole bunch of people flooding their Twitter all the time, right? So <laughs> for some of these these wrestlers, I almost wonder if some of them are like, what's in it for me for us to kill ourselves to go over to India more often? You know, I almost wonder, could WWE do half as well and just send the WWE UK guys instead or NXT people or whatever it is and just kind of, you know, half ass it? Well, and if it's people who are I feel like no matter where they go, they've, they've got people who are familiar with their product because they watch it on TV. Right. So it's, it's not like the fans don't know who the stars are. I don't think that's true. I I just mean, I feel like the WWE superstars themselves might be questioning sometimes, why are you making me fly this much further around the world for this one show and risking getting really sick and in front of this other fan base? And, And maybe they're just told that's always your job. But I think that's the difference between getting them to buy in and say, here's the reason this is so valuable to you. And here's what I'm telling you to do today, because I just see eventually this is going to breed distrust and disgust and annoyance and excuses you know <laughs> well i mean they fly they just flew to all around south america and, and i know there's brazil that's an emerging economy but the, it's not like there's all these countries in south america that are that they're putting titles on people from from countries in south america and whatnot uh, you know what i mean yeah, I, I'm just thinking in terms of, you know, just all the health scares and other things that have been happening here. Uh, I just wonder if some of these people are going to just kind of throw their hands up at some point and just say, look, you, you're not using me in a way that makes me feel like a valued oh, yeah. person besides just a commodity that you're squeezing more and more juice out of. And and then maybe uh, they're going to not feed for their uh, bump and feed and just powder out and walk to the Well, back. I mean, you know, people people try to figure out what's going on with Zane and Owens. Why do they get sent home from the European tour? And the reality is we don't really know. Like, you know, I love that Ivan the Impaler quote uh, about, you know, we heard that people have been sent. What, what does he say? We learned that Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn were sent home from the WWE European tour. We learned this from tweets of other people who learned it from tweets of others who have no concrete idea as to why and are speculating to the reasons. Hashtag pro wrestling journalism. And and that's generally right. You know, that we we just get a snippet of information and then we we cascade a series of conclusions off of that. Here's one of my series of conclusions is that (laughs) somehow I activate series of conclusions cause Siri 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 to go. Yes, because series of conclusions. Oh, God. All these these robots that live in our homes. 
I know, right? Um, the point here being just like, you know, these UK tours can be exhausting and can kind of drive people up a wall, much like all these other European, all these other international tours. And so I think when we start breaking that cycle of, you know, you get to leave your family on a Thursday or a Friday and you get back on a Tuesday and you move it to, okay, you're going to spend two weeks on the road or three weeks on a road. You know, there, there's a correlation oftentimes to that's when incidents start to go up because they throw everybody on the same bus instead of your own transportation and they throw everyone in the same hotel and sort of staying where you want to be. So I think it has some impact on, you know, how, the psyche of the group. Yeah, I, I would like to think that the uh, how poorly the, the show is booked, how poorly the, the product overall and the main roster is booked week to week is finally starting to, this is purely my speculation, is finally starting to wear down on the morale of a lot of talent. And I think we see that manifest in Neville, maybe whatever's going on with Zane and Owens, maybe whatever was going on with Nia Jax, maybe that was a factor too. That, uh, you know, I think like I've said, the fans fans have a, uh, a hard floor for how how much bad booking they're willing to tolerate. The W booking isn't so bad that they're they're going to kill their product or kill their business, but it's 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 not very focused, and there I don't think there's a great moral compass behind it. But there's a, a certain level that they hover around in terms of the booking quality, and there's a certain basal of the fans, which is about the number of fans who exist now and, and consume W products. Like those fans aren't going away. And the booking isn't going to get so much worse that more of those fans are going to go away. But maybe the the workers are going to stick up for themselves and fight back. I don't know. Um, well, I think we're in an economy, though, where you know WWE has this big NXT machine. So there's a lot they can pl- put out there and say, hey, uh, Eric Rowan, if you don't want to do this anymore, we got another big giant down in NXT we can just call up and he can take your spot. And unless you're a, you know, Randy Orton or a, um, to a lesser degree, yeah, Seth Rollins or something like that, it, it's getting tougher and tougher to be that commodity that can't be replaced. Yeah, but you look at the, in the case of Sami Zayn, Kevin Owens, and Neville, these are three guys who, if it came to it, could make a good living outside of WWE in wrestling. All three for sure. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, what, what do those three people all have in common too? They're not Americans. <laughs> they're, well, actually, that's a good point. They're not Americans. I was going to say they all started outside of the business too, mm-hmm. and they had a good thing. I don't know if Peyton Royce could make an, a career for herself on the outside. I, I don't know if Emma's going to be able to make a long career for herself on the outside. Um, I think there's other companies out there that will help, you know, kind of give you that stability. And this goes to a, a point you and I were talking about in the document here about is TNA a net positive or net negative for this business as a whole. Um, it gives the people a lot of play, you know, there's a lot of talent in TNA who would not have a quote unquote steady paycheck if they weren't in TNA. Cause I don't see them necessarily getting picked up by other companies around the world. Yeah. But, I've, I've, and so it gives them exposure, but at the same time, TNA is a bruised, broken commodity with a bad brand name. Yeah. And I thought about this too is, you think obviously there's this like these two worlds that they're cultivating, right? The when it comes to NXT, they've got all these NXT guys that they've signed up from the Indies who've got some hype around them with some of their hardcore fans, and then they've got maybe some athletes or people from other walks of life that they've recruited and who they're training to be pro wrestlers. And I think you see that uh, when when people leave WWE, maybe and think of like the Rybacks and the Jack Swaggers. Uh, don't don't you think not having been on the Indies? It, it prepares you less for what life is going to be like 
when the day comes when you're not going to be employed by WB, which is going to be the case for the vast majority of the wrestlers that they have on our contract. Someday you're not going to be working for WB. And whether or not you've got experience before you ever came to WB in, in dealing with being on the indies is going to determine, I think it's going to be a big factor, at least into how much success you're going to be able to have outside WB. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it's a passion question, too, which is, are you interested in what you do? I mean, you could say it's about your living, right? Are you interested in what you do for a living or do you do what you do for a living to get paid? And a lot of people are going to be, I do what I do, but if you paid me to do something else, I'd go do that. And a lot of people are tired of travel. I also think it has to do with who your traveling partner is. You know, if you are someone who is notoriously on your own, and you never really had much of a career outside of WWE, I think it's going to be much harder for you to adjust to that indie lifestyle versus someone who might maybe even did get recruited in. You know, like a Chad Gable, I think, would do okay on the indies. And I would almost wonder if, you know, he probably found the right people that are able to say, here's what life is like out there. Here's what you can do to make it work. Um, Versus if you're riding by yourself and just paying extra for that rental car, you know, it's going to wear you down because you're not getting that external advice and that external validation or, or introspection from someone else. Yeah. So, and, and to Ivan's point about uh, how pro wrestling uh, journalism works, I, a few months ago, this is an interesting story, like a few months ago I went to a concert and, uh, and the person that, that I, I won't reveal his name because you'll see why, like, but the person who was, who was giving the concert, the, like the musical artist, he was apparently like really drunk or really under the influence of something. And so the, the concert went really bad and you know, he was forgetting like verses to his songs. And then he just like abruptly like walked off stage. And, uh, then I like, I was like, and I feel like th- this person's like at least as famous as an average pro wrestler that we're going to talk about. Right. And, uh, so I, you go online, you look up like, okay, is there going to be news about this? Like, is this going to be posted everywhere on the internet? And like nothing. And, and that just like showed to me, Wow, like if this if this guy was a pro wrestler, this would be all over every wrestling news site, you know, within hours or at least by the next day. And it, it, it showed to me like just how weird wrestling media is. Like there's so much attention on, on these individual wrestlers that's like really disproportionate to their I don't know, actual level of fame. But because they're pro wrestlers, there's this audience out there of, of news consumers at least that want to know and want to click and and read stuff about you to this extent absolutely i mean i always go back to that they once had a thing of like what was the 10 most edited wikipedia articles and of them like four of them were wrestling articles right (laughs) and it's like i don't think wrestling is one of the 10 most important things for us to be tracking on wikipedia in this world right um but the fact is wrestling fans are voracious and we had um, um, mayoral elections here in Minnesota. And so the guy that won the mayor for St. Paul didn't even have a Wikipedia page until the day after he won. And I just thought, wow, think of all the uh, Scott McGee's out there that have Wikipedia pages, you know, all these like indie wrestlers or, or tiny little people. And then the mayor – who won for St. Paul and is, you know, a legitimate, he was the first African-American mayor elected in St. Paul here, uh, a, a very legitimate, important person, Melvin Carter. And it's like, he didn't even have a Wikipedia page. And it's just funny to me about, you know, where this disproportionate amount of energy goes sometimes. 
and I'm responsible for it. You're responsible for it. We all are. You know, I, I to me, it's funnier to me is about MMA news because it's like, at least in pro wrestling news, these people are doing shows all the time right. and I can, you know, react to their signing this or doing this. I always think about MMA news. It's like boxing. It's like, what is there to report on half the time? Uh, except for we think this fight is going to happen. Oh, this fight is not going to happen. And then unless you have a Conor McGregor out there, th- you know, throwing boomerangs in people's face or whatever and, and jump in the cage and punching a referee. Um, I know he pushed him. He didn't pu- punch him. But yeah, that idea of just like it's 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 funny to me that, you know, I, I think WWE news makes sense. But then I'm like MMA news. How do they do that? And uh, just like you're saying with rock news, it's like it's such a insular little world. Um, which, though, which feels I will, like on his face, you would think, you know, what are people going to be more on, like mainstream people, regular people at large are going to be more passionate about music or wrestling? Apparently wrestling. Well, you could make the argument that it's a pseudo sport and pseudo sports and sports are covered in micro detail. So think about all the football news that is out there and how much, you know, talk radio is produced every week just talking about sports, right? And the difference there being that entertainment does not get this level of interest. Um, There's lots of TV shows that until recently you would never read about in the newspaper a review of a TV show, right? And then only in the most recent years have they been like, well, Game of Thrones and Walking Dead and whatnot, those are worth us writing reviews of every week as if they're almost movies for us to say, did we like this or not like this? And so like now you can go to the New York Times and read a review of the Game of Thrones episode every week. And I think that's the change here is that in the past, entertainment was not always covered in a news-like fashion. There were, you know, obviously outlets for entertainment news, the TMZs of the world or in the old days, you know, anything from the National Enquirer to, you know, People magazine. But it, it is a different venue where I think WWE strides that line between entertainment and sports, which makes people hyper interested in trying to report on it in, in that way. Plus, I just think that there's just a lot of Twitter, you know, I think is one of those things that it's been disproportionately adopted by wrestling fans. And so it's not a good indicative factor of what's really happening in the wrestling world. But it's a, a there's a lot of voice there. And it's, you know, we built, we, I, I, I mean, I can't put it down too much because I built my entire following pretty much off of wrestling message boards and Twitter. And I did it on the message boards to then people be like, Hey, listen to this guy on Twitter. And then Twitter, we built off the show. So, you know, I wouldn't have any WrestleNomics radio listeners if it wasn't for Twitter and wrestling message boards. Yeah. I, I wonder if part of the reason why wrestling media and wrestling fandom is the way that it is, is because of. You know, and, and like I was a teenager when this was going on, and that you know the internet was starting to become something that a lot of people had in their homes, and uh, pro wrestling had always had never really been covered with much access. You know, for for what it is, I think as, as Dave would say, right? Like, we, oh yeah, there was. I, I what I want to say is like wrestling news was basically suppressed for its entire history until the mid to late 90s when the internet started to become available to a lot of people so that maybe we're but but here we are you know 20 years later and but I guess my point is that maybe it was it was so repressed and there was so much pressure built up so that that when the internet comes and releases all that pressure uh we're really avid about it and I don't know maybe that's a factor as well well we certainly saw that I mean podcasts right like wrestling podcasts disproportionately were popular when they started because there was such a bent up demand for it. You know, Dave Meltzer writing in the national about wrestling things, they would always say it was the most hated and the most replied to 
section of the sports thing, right? Like it garnered the most interest because people were desperate for this information and it was hated by the quote unquote, you know, real sports fans that how dare this be covered in a, a wrestling format. But it, it's, it's very true that there's always been this pent up demand and uh, it's underserved and it's an oligarchy. So, you know, people control the news in a certain way and there's been a, somewhat of a democratization of the knowledge sharing so that, you know, it's funny to me that WWE in some ways has had to, much like other sports, I guess, has had to kind of follow the lead of the fans to figure out what are they interested in. And then suddenly been like, oh, we should be, you know, giving them information that way where, you know, uh, when fantasy baseball got big, companies got rich by basically publishing statistics about baseball players. And people were like, oh, I didn't realize people wanted that. But, you know, same thing in, in wrestling is I think there's a lot of things where the companies themselves don't realize people want it. But then the fans themselves are the ones that are going out and making the music videos to the wrestling stat sites to whatever it is. And that, you know, the, it's a story of Goldberg's streak, right? That fans themselves started to track his streak. Yeah. And then WCW finally realized, oh, this is cool. And then, of course, they screwed it up by padding the numbers. And it's like, wait, what are you doing? It's so easy sometimes. You don't have to lie. Just because you're carnies doesn't mean you have to lie all the time. So what you're saying is W.com should start up its own like statistics section of its website. I've said it before. I loved – they had a fantasy league one time and it was – actually many times. They had about five seasons of fantasy league. And then they had a season where you had to actually pay to join the fantasy league. There was like five bucks. And I was like, this is perfect because I have no problem paying a little bit for, for you know, kind of weeding out the millions of people that are just going to sign up and never do anything. It's much more fun to compete against, you know, people that really care. And then it was a disaster because they had like points for weapon strikes. And then like one week, the Sandman hit someone like 72 times, and <laughs> like screwed up all of the scoring. But really? I, I kind of loved it. Yeah, it was it was great. I always say that's my big that was my big idea for a long time was like fantasy wrestling. And then I think I found that someone had already patented it out there of like uh, a fantasy wrestling thing already exists as a patent somewhere. So I was like, they, oh. could, they could still do stats like there's yeah. uh other sports have so much more consistent stats keeping. And, uh, I know. Royal Rumble is about the only time once a year that they, they, they roll around and suddenly Michael Cole becomes a statistician. Yeah. But if W.com – and we know, we know George is listening. And, but if W.com wants to start up a statistics section of their website and you need uh, two intelligent people to, uh, to lead that, uh, we, we are open to listening. Well, maybe three because James Ellsworth is available now if they want to hire him. There you go. So the Ellsworth experiment. Um, I we'll, uh, we'll have Ellsworth do our data entry. Well, like I had, I had put a, um, I don't want to call it a death pool, but a you know who is leaving WWE this year pool on um, Figure Four at the beginning of the year, and I think it had, you know, the the normal people you'd expect. Page, of course, was really high in there for a while, and then anything from like you know Eric Rowan to uh, James. L. Actually, I, I didn't allow James Ellsworth. Because at the time, I did not think that it was even feasible that he would last through the end of the year. And ultimately, I was right, though he made it pretty darn close, making it all the way in November. The Ellsworth experiment, interesting, right? You know, the the whole kind of – you could make an argument there that there was something to be said about making a name for yourself and having internet fans react to you in such a way that it mattered. Yeah, he's really somebody who wouldn't have – do you think he gets signed if this was 1997 or 1992 or something, you know? Like the reason why he got signed was because he kind of became an internet meme, right? Yeah, yeah. And and the fact that he 
Yeah, exactly. I, I think that's exactly what it is. And and he was cheap, right? I'm sure <laughs> sure that it works well. I mean, Colin Delaney got a, a similar deal back in the day where he went on, he did a good job, Vince McMahon liked it, and then because Vince McMahon liked it, they signed him. And so I bet you Ellsworth was not too far off from that, which is when Vince when you tickle Vince's fancy, um basically people will scramble to make sure that Vince is not made to look like a fool. And so if that means he says we're so and so and they don't have a contract, they sign you to a contract on the spot, which is more or less what I've heard has happened once or twice. You know, it's the 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 Jimmy Yang has a story like that where he showed up at the backstage of a show and was like basically practicing a spot with like Big Show. And then like Vince said something like, you know who I haven't seen on television for a while? A KO. And so they like rushed to like basically put him back under contract because they they didn't want Vince to be like, hey, Vince, we uh, let him go like a year ago. <laughs> So that sort of thing happens sometimes. So, so I just thought I'm looking this up here. So James Ellsworth lasted longer than Colin, didn't he? Uh, you know, they're very similar lengths of time. If you look at the whole thing, as I recall, I guess it depends on when you start the clock. Exactly. From their, their debut job match or when they were actually signed to a contract. But he, he de- I mean, James Ellsworth was on television a hell of a lot more than Colin was. Um, because Colin was an ECW guy for the most part, so you know it was, and and they rarely put him on the road, and James went on the road a lot. So yeah, the, the Colin Delaney and Sheldon Benjamin thing happens December two thousand seventeen. I'm sorry, December two thousand seven. So ten years ago, you believe that? Um, yes. <laughs> and then he was released in August two thousand eight. So less than a year for Colin. And uh, if you start the clock from there, if you start the clock from Ellsworth and Stroman, that's July two thousand sixteen up to just now. So that's over a year for Ellsworth. But there was well, a Ellsworth long wins. time where he wasn't around. Yeah. So, but no, that's it's just interesting little footnote there. I think um, a good example of, you know, it takes all types, and so I think Ellsworth was just the right sort of extra thing that you you do want to sprinkle into the roster every now and then. Um, for nothing else, then I do think it does give kind of fans this this outdated hope that hey, that could be me. Yeah, and you know, like as as a as an indie wrestler watching that, it's like I don't, I don't know if if other people. I, I guess a lot of people have been to small indie shows. A lot of people haven't, but I wonder if it's like it, it, it gave me the the impression of like let's take the average local indie wrestler and let's drop him into WWE and see what that's like. Like that's what that that's what the appeal and the fun was in a large part to me. It's like here's here's Jimmy Dream taking on Braun Strowman and and let's see what it's like. And and you know he he did all right for uh uh trying to sell himself. I guess he only had twenty. Oh yeah, this is Colin I'm looking at here. All right, so yeah, December two thousand seven through August two thousand. And, and James Ellsworth has an outstanding record as far as wins and losses. If anything exposes uh professional right? wrestling as being a work, then uh, it's that. Well. It, the whole AJ storyline really makes me think if AJ and him were somehow friends or got along or what it was just because they, they put him over AJ in such a way that it's just like, wow, that was a surprising choice to make for someone who is as, as um, valuable as AJ is to the company. But um, let's talk a little bit about this NXT ROH San Antonio thing. Very interesting, you know, that they decided to. Uh, end up running a little bit of head-to-head. They had, of course, um, HBK coming in to special referee um, the night before. You had the takeover show. What were all your um, takeaways from this weekend about kind of the uh, ROH versus NXT shows? I'm still trying to collect uh, some information on just what the attendances were like, uh, but I know that uh, 
Ring of Honor sold out in San Antonio. I'm sure our friend Lavi Margolin could tell us about what the uh, the setup was for that. But uh, yeah, Ring of Honor sold out. NXT did not. Uh, people are telling me on Twitter that NXT was packed. Um, for the takeover show or for the uh, this, the other show? For the NXT show in San Antonio, not the takeover show. So this is Friday we're talking about, right? Yeah. Friday yeah, and that's, San that's the other thing to kind of emphasize is that additionally, WWE was basically trying to run two nights, one in San Antonio, one in Houston. Yep. And Ring of Honor was running their show. And uh, Ring of Honor ended up bringing in uh, Stephen Amell, uh, a.k.a. Arrow, who uh, a lot of people probably remember from that Cody Rhodes match at uh, SummerSlam a couple years ago, I think it was. And doing some uh, gimmicks since they made it a five-on-four match in the main event of uh, Cody Omega, Bucks, and Amel versus the Addiction Flip Gordon Scorpio Sky. And um, I'm, I'm kind of curious if I see any pictures of that match, how Amel looked in that match for size. I just remember in that that WWE show, he looked so small and tiny. And if you ever watch Arrow, he doesn't look like a, you know, he looks like he's a well-built guy. And it just was kind of shocking to me to see how different in size he looked to, you know, professional wrestlers where, again, on television, they're okay with short people, right? Um, they, they have no problem with you being under 5'10 if you're an actor. But in WWE, being under 5'10 can be a kiss of death. Uh, in a lot of situations. And so obviously Cody's not the tallest guy in the world either, but just seeing a male in those, I remember just how untanned and, and, you know, just normally built. He looked like a real average and human. Yeah. Yeah. And especially for a guy who plays a superhero, you know, that's what I think was kind of funny to me was just seeing someone like that. So I, I think it's cool that, um, Stephen Amell, you know, and Cody are, are keeping this up in some way. Obviously Amell must be a little bit of a wrestling mark to kind of want to go in this direction. And uh, he's obviously able to jump through a thousand hoops if he's able to uh, get permission to do this. You know, it's not the most common thing in the world to see uh, actors going out there and actually competing in a wrestling show. And I think he took a table bump and stuff like that. So I've always noticed that you meet people in person, especially people who have been on WTV that, you know, I think I think like Mick Foley. He's like I think I met him once and he was like, my God, he's so tall. But you yeah, we're used to seeing him on TV, like especially in, I remember in the Attitude Era in the context of like undertaker Kane, so he yeah. was like yeah that small guy you know fully fully fully's got an enormous physique when you look at him for not like muscles but like like he talks about why was he able to do jobs in the 80s is because he had that you know that that jobber look where he could bump just enough and was a heavy enough guy that he had some credibility to him yeah. and um oh i lost my train of thought here about what i was going to say about uh, uh roh's show but that I, I guess ROH sold out, but they were in a smaller venue. Takeover was packed, so Takeover, and not not, take, not Takeover, but NXT in San Antonio with Shawn Michaels and all that. Drew Moore, we'll get, we'll get the numbers probably at least from the Observer by next week. But NXT drew more, ROH drew less, but ROH sold out. NXT did not. And and ROH had Kenny Omega, and NXT didn't. You know, I do think Kenny Omega right now has proved himself to be an indie draw on the uh, American scene. And I think he matters right now in a yeah, way. I don't yeah. think he's always going to matter. I don't – and I wouldn't say there's probably no one in NXT that matters as much as – certainly as much as Kenny Omega. I know Dave was kind of making that argument. I don't buy Dave's argument when he's saying, oh, well, John Cena is an untested commodity. We can't really say whether he draws less or more than than Kenny Omega. Yeah, he's trying to draw allusions to um, – analogies to Jeff Hardy on the Indies in 2009. Yeah. 
I went and saw Jeff Hardy on the Indies in 2009. Oh, no, I saw him on the Indies um, in 2000. I take that back. I saw him on the Indies in like 2005 or whatever when he had just left WWE and went to Ring of Honor the first time. Um, and it was terrible. <laughs> Jeff Hardy or Matt Hardy? It was Jeff Hardy. Uh, gosh, now you're going to make me find the show because I, I drove down. It was uh, Paul London's Goodbye Show. In, in Rochester or Minnesota? No, no, no. This was like in, in uh, Elizabeth, New Jersey, I want to say. Uh, yeah, this was a this was a ridiculous show for me to try to drive to because then I drove home that night and really? had to. It was a very long <laughs> night. Let's find here. All right, we got Jeff Hardy. Um, 2003 did a uh, three way dance. Jeff Hardy defeats Joey Matthews and Crazy K at oh. the ROF Death Before Dishonor at the Rexplex in Elizabeth, New Jersey, which was also the Samoa Joe beats Paul London match, had a dog collar match between Raven and CM Punk, and had a uh, there's really no other matches here that are But this is a short this is a short indie run for Jeff Hardy, right? Yeah, yeah, that appears to be the only time he wrestled in ROH until 2017. Yeah. And that's a different, 2000, different world. Like 2003 compared was, to 2017 yes, is, a, is a pretty different world in terms of somebody like Kenny Omega can't really emerge as a difference maker in 2003 the way he can in 2017 yeah. just because the media landscape is, is so different. And I, I just would – to me, I would say John Cena's history as a WWE draw – is so enormous that if he was ever quote unquote on the indie scene, I think he would be phenomenal business for some period of time there. I, 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 I get where, you know, people are trying to say, well, look, he, he's barely moving these WWE shows this way or that way. But I do think that there's a difference in perception on whether WWE is coming to town or whether some indie with such and such stars coming to town. And uh, it would be huge. (laughs) It's all I can say is it would be very different if John Cena was a free commodity. And, you know, you want to talk about guys that could make quite a lot of money on on the outside. It would be Cena. But obviously he's not going to do that. And, yeah, it would. It, there's only limited number of people that would have the money to even pay for that kind of commodity yeah, that he I, would be. I think John Cena is so clearly the biggest active pro wrestling star in the world that, of course, he would draw. Yeah, and even active is a, a question mark, right? Because he's he's a semi-active guy right. at this point. When I say active, I'm putting part-timers and full-timers in yeah, the same. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. you're saying he's not an undertaker or something like that, and yeah. he's not a Kurt Angle who goes and signs autographs. He's a, a guy that still goes in ring. Sure. No, that makes sense. Um, did you watch any of the NXT uh, TakeOver show? I did. I had it on. I uh, I caught two matches. I caught the women's match, and I caught the War Games match. So the women's match, talking about heights there, you know, you want to talk about a Laputian uh, forest. It was like, well, how tall is Carrie Sane? I was like, she's like 5'1". Ember Moon is like 5'3". And um, Peyton Royce looks like she's a giant among them at 5'7". And uh, the referee himself, I, I'm kind of curious how they, you know, they, they must have hired a guy who's like 5'6 or 5'7 just to, you know, kind of not stick out among them. But it was it was kind of funny with the way they shot it. You would never know that. You would never like instantly say, "Oh, these women are not that tall." But um, when I was talking to my wife about it, I was like, "Yeah, they're Carrie Sane is tiny compared to um, you know someone our height." But at the same time, I liked. I thought they had a good match. Um, I enjoyed the women's match. I thought they did a good job with what they did had to do with it. Um, and I thought the emotional ending of you know a Texas person winning in Texas. I thought they did that well um, with the switch over with Oscar. Um, and then the war games match, 
I enjoyed. I thought the finish was a little weird. After everything that led up to it, it it seemed a little anticlimactic to me. But um, as a spectacle, enjoyed it. It was a little, you know, it's always terrifying seeing guys on top of the cage there trying to catch their footing. And you're like, oh, God. The blood was, you know, I don't know if you saw that one piece of table covered in blood from um, who's the German guy who did the, the German suplex through the table on the author of pain and like the back of his head just like left this gush, this amount of blood on there. It was it was kind of shocking to me. But uh, yeah, it was a it was an entertaining show. I wouldn't say it was, you know, the best show I've ever seen or nothing of that matter. But I, en- I enjoyed the interpretation of it. How about you? And uh, I just had it on in the background while I was doing other stuff. But uh the um, Alistair Black and uh, Velveteen Dream match seemed to really overachieve. Yeah, I saw uh, Velveteen Dream's hair, uh, you know, Xavier Woods level, like the time he came out in Atlanta with the crazy, crazy do on, on New Day. Um, I think Velveteen Dream, it's so funny to me when you go between who wins tough enough and then who ends up succeeding in this yeah. business. Well, they just and be like, the, was it? yeah, yeah, that, the, uh, the Yeti, yeah. Josh Brandle, I think was his name. Yeah. yeah. And, um, uh, and of course, Sarah, uh, the woman from Tough Enough, also has gone now. And you know, go back all the years. Uh, the last Tough Enough winner ended up in Puerto Rico. Um, I don't think he ever even made television again. Uh, you have, you know, Miz didn't win his season. Uh, Daniel P- Puder did. Um, other, you know, just things like that over the years. You know, the the, the Linda Mills and Nidia being the two that won the one season, you know, it's, it's been kind of funny, the difference between winning and the difference and, and being successful, how uncorrelated those two have really been over the years. It really blows the, the credibility of, of the tough enough brand. I think that you, you, they've never had a winner who's gone on to do anything. I don't know if that it blows the credibility because I would not, say not that everybody say, knows that when they, no, when but they I'd say it's the same it, as the but... voice, right? Does the biggest superstar in the world come from the voice? Does it come from America's Got Talent? Does it come from American Idol? American Idol at least can claim some successes, well, but they've like also Kelly had Clarkson so many American Idol once, and she's you have Kelly Clarkson and, and Jennifer right? Hudson. But then you have so many others that you know. If I were to Taylor Hicks and people, you just say who? So I mean, they, their hit miss ratio is pretty high, and they're ten times, you know, hundred times the profile. So I, I do think it just says that reality-based competitions are not the best way of adjudicating future success for people, and that is a headline so unimpressive it's not worth publishing. Um, so that you know that's an inquisitor headline. That's not a uh, that's not a figure four headline. Forbes.com, <laughs> maybe a Forbes.com blog. Ouch. Um, so yeah, I, I just mean I, just intriguing to me. You know who succeeds, who doesn't succeed, and you know what that pipeline is. And even just talking about, you know, who 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 has a passion for this business before they get in and where they get. You know, I had no idea that Peyton Royce was a, uh, you know, a wrestler before she uh, came to WWE for many years. She I think she even went and trained with Lance Storm. Yep. And so it's just like a lot of these people you think because my wife was like, are they really just doing a gimmick being I'm prettier than you? That's a gimmick. And I was like, well, yes, because a it's marketable. B, you can relate to it in some way and C. She's not – she wasn't a model who was given this gimmick. She was someone who as a pro wrestler has developed this as her gimmick. And I think that makes a big difference between whether or not you know, you're going to succeed or not in this case. Um, any other matches you uh, uh, stood out, really enjoyed or, or thought has a great potential? How was the Cassius Ono match? I, again, I had it on the background. It seemed like – I think Cassius Ono is picking up the, uh, the slot that was previously held by – 
even uh, Almas and uh, Ty Dillinger of being the the face at the uh, beginning of the takeover who puts over somebody. Yeah, I was going to say the experienced hand who's there to kind of move the move somebody to the next level. Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit of what Austin Aries was doing at one point and some other people, sure. That's like a, I think it's like a pattern of Triple H's booking that he he likes to have an opener on his takeovers where he's got like a, a face or somebody who's pretty over and then they put somebody over who's working their way up. Yeah, I was going to say I think of it as a parabola, and so it's someone who, at least in WWE's view, is on the the farther end of that parabola, going downwards, mm-hmm. and they're not too old to be the the grizzled veterans fighting their way back, and they're not, you know, they're they're still in the mix, but it's kind of clear that they're not being mixed in with the purpose of being elevated in the future, and uh, you know, this might be the stopping point for them NXT as a whole as a brand, which, you know, if it continues to be a well paying Fed. It, I'm sure it's more um, – I'm sure you have a lot more job security and better paychecks than you do in TNA. I'll put it that way. And I would think Hero <laughs> has a future as a trainer there if he wants to stay yeah, there. Exactly. Um, we, we, it's not in our notes, but we should make quick mention that it sounds like the Sinclair merger um, acquisition uh, thing is being approved by the FCC, which means you know Sinclair would be able to buy a lot more stations and uh, would possibly have an impact on the distribution of Ring of Honor nationwide. So it uh, looks like that's going ahead. I know, like we said, our, our friend Lavi um, is always covering that on his Twitter, all the you know, machinations day-to-day and, and as both a shareholder and as a wrestling fan. So uh, you the, can the always The best-case scenario for Ring of Honor is they could end up on WGN, right, which has pre, pre-wide coverage. Is that right? WGN certainly does. I don't know if that's a feasible scenario for what's happening here, um, just because I don't know how independent WGN is run from the rest of the the piece of the organization. But yeah, I think it's possible. Um, I think it's. I, I only leave that kind of vague because sometimes with these, you know, media companies, when they really carve out one corner of it, they don't like to mess with it in a certain way and kind of put another corporate overload over it. So. But the so Ring of Honor is still not available, as far as I know, in New York, Chicago, and L.A., which I'm pretty sure yeah, exactly. Three, and three, so that, three biggest markets in the U.S. But if not through WGN, there are possibly other affiliates that they could end up that Ring of Honor could end up on via syndication in those big markets. That's my understanding for sure. Yeah, I feel bad if I speak too heavily on it and get it 100 percent wrong. Uh, speaking of getting 100 percent wrong, 181 million dollars for Orlando. Congratulations, WWE, for generating 181 million dollars for Orlando, compared to only the 170 million they drew for Dallas. So, right. Dallas, you, you're worth you're worthless to them. Um, what do you take of these feasibility studies where WWE puts out a press release and talks about how much money they generated for? I don't know. They're independent studies, so what do I know? Yeah. Independent studies that just happen to be commissioned uh, by, in this case, the Enigma Research Corporation, um, by paid for by WWE that then finds out that WWE generates all this money. And when someone asked me about it, I said it's great for all the gas stations in Tampa who sold hot dogs because somehow that gets counted into the final economic feasibility of it all. Um, I'm looking well, forward to reading. Be, like, right? Like, that's good for the economy that somebody's buying your hot dog, I guess, right? Yeah, but it's it's trying to create an independent variable to say this would not have happened had this event not been going on at this time. Yeah. And, you know, that we wouldn't have, you know. It, it, to me, it's like this. If the Super Bowl is coming here to Minneapolis. Oh, yeah, I see what you're saying. Right? If, if they had done a, a, a concert instead of WrestleMania, what would be the difference? Yeah, so the Super Bowl is coming here. Yeah. And so everyone's talking about, you know, how big it's going to be for everybody nearby. I can only tell you how much of a hell this has been 
getting ready for the Super Bowl with the roads and the taxes and everything else that they've done. Because what you don't always kind of include in these feasibility studies is the fact that they're closing half of our roads for half of the year to upgrade this and do this and do that. And it's becoming, you know, the amount of time it's killed of our commutes. And if you were to add up all the value of everyone's time that they've now added on to their commutes and all the other issues that they've caused around the city and how security is going to be insane and how many people I know who are basically avoiding that area for the, you know, for month, for weeks and weeks to avoid all these, these painful things that are going to happen with our transit and with our hotels and with our downtown security and everything else. It's going to be absurd. And so I, I always feel like you only find the net positives and you don't take away any of the net negatives because there is a negative impact, too, to the community in certain ways. Which is probably and, harder to measure, too, right? Well, it's it's not a favorable study. So it just means it's not usually – they. I think they've done – you know, economists have done kind of peer-reviewed studies on this stuff and said, you know, basically it's much like when a drug company um, – tries to do quote unquote independent research and some somehow they always find positive results on their products when they're not being really independently funded, but they're being funded directly by someone. So I think you can always structure a study in such a way to come out with the result given enough data points that you want to skew in a certain direction. Um, the other example I used to give is in consulting. If I was working on a category and it was dropping 10% a year and then after I worked on it, it dropped to 5% a year. I would call that a plus 5% gain. And then I would say that the value that you didn't lose was the value I generated for you. Well, you know, that's a very tough argument because you're still losing money. But I'm now arguing that you'd lost less money than you would have lost. And so that I added value to you. And so that's a funny thing is that I think sometimes you get into these weird arguments where basically you're just saying a net negative that's worth better than a hypothetical net negative is a positive, And therefore, I can count a value to that. And hey, that's that's what marketing is. That's what the American dream is. So I'm I'm okay with it. But I just always say I don't take these, I, I take these with an enormous grain of salt. I don't necessarily um really believe in any of them. So that's my stance on them. And you can disagree. So maybe maybe we should hire the Enigma Research Corporation to uh, do a study for us to tell us about how uh, intelligent and attractive uh, WrestleNomics listeners are to uh, potential sponsors. <laughs> I think they should just hire us in general so that we can uh, talk about how uh, WrestleNomics informed so many of these intelligent and attractive people to spend so much money in each of these cities. Yes. Speaking of which, we might even have a, uh, a WrestleNomics event in uh, New Orleans uh, during WrestleMania weekend. So if you are planning on going to WrestleMania weekend, please let us know. Uh, figure out, you know, would you be interested in hearing a live taping of WrestleNomics? Or, I, I guess I am going to go to New Orleans again. Or, or would I've you already... like to uh, – oh, you, you've committed to this? I've already, I think I already bought the plane ticket through Southwest. Oh, so you're, you're ahead of me. I haven't bought a plane ticket yet, so yeah. who knows how the hell you, I'm getting You've got there. the WrestleMania ticket, but not the plane ticket. I do. And in the past, I have also waited really long and then just bought it on StubHub or Ticketmaster or whatever. And I just decided, hey, I'm just going to get it, these two tickets. You know, if someone else comes along with better tickets, I'll go move to those. You know, my I, I've said it before. My dream is still to go to the WWE Business Partner Summit. I think I'm the only person <laughs> in North America who uh, has that dream, and uh, I'm going to make it happen, man. I'm going to report live from there. Hopefully, that'll be what Friday or something. It's usually the Saturday, Saturday. right before okay. Saturday morning. Yeah, it's usually like the Saturday morning of. Um, I don't know if I'll bother to go to WrestleMania. This is something I've, I've, I put a question out there on Twitter. Is like I don't know. Should I, do I want to uh, support WWE more than I already do? I already uh, subscribe to the network, and, but 
I have thought about going to W shows, and I kind of eh, maybe I won't in the last uh, year or so. I'm I'm intrigued because I at least remember most of the WrestleManias I go to very well, whereas I don't remember watching the WrestleManias very well. Yeah, and I but feel on like the flip side, I I almost never go and rewatch the WrestleMania I was at live on the network. So it's funny because the experience live is almost always better than the experience on television just because it's such a it's such a production. Like even my wife, who does not care very much for wrestling, always says WrestleMania is fun to go to because it's a production. Every match feels different. Every, the lights are up. The lights are down. The day starts bright. The day ends dark. It's exciting. It's lots of people there. And, and you know, people are, are popping for what's happening. And for the most part, it's fun. But it's like when I got back from WrestleMania in um, California, I had no idea what this whole Suplex City bitch thing was. Because <laughs> we don't, you know, you don't hear that live. You you, yeah. you can't pick up on that. So that was kind of cool that, you know, I was like, oh, there's a different experience for people watching. So it was fun. You know, there's things that are fun, things that are good. And, uh, you know, especially if I have a friend who's going to be on the card, it makes me happy to see them live. You know, that's that's big for me is, uh, you know, I shed a tear when I saw a friend of mine on the card. And I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe this person has made it all this far after this many years that, you know, they're sitting here in the stadium. And that is enormous. That's that's really cool. That feels really neat. So, I hope, you know, I hope, from, I hope Paul Levesque got you free tickets for that. <laughs> so my, my hope is, you know, if, if my friend is going to be there, I'm going to be there live. If if I don't know anyone on the card, then you, you kind of make a decision of what you want to do. But almost always live events I find are enjoyable. I went to bragging rights. People hated the show. I loved it live. So what, what can I say? Let's start New Japan. Um, it, our show two weeks ago was the breaking news. You know, it's the leading edge, the knife's tip of the Jericho in uh, New Japan news. Our and, most most listened to show ever. As oh, well. yep. Thank you, everyone. I I, I have to blame. Uh, you know, Chris. I don't even know if it's Chris Jericho, right? Because I reviewed his book a couple times. We didn't get big pops from that. No, it was Kenny Omega. It's Kenny Omega. That, that's that big draw. The Kenny Omega effect. Yes. So, uh, tell me a little bit about this business news for um, New Japan. What have we learned? Uh, Evan pointed out to us, and this appears to be from New Japan itself, that uh, New Japan reported, I believe it's $34 million for their fiscal year of 2017, which is more than the $28 million they made last year. Of course, this is in yen, and I'm just saying the U.S. dollars, but uh, more than the $28 million they made last year in revenue, and that's on par with the 96 and 97 numbers, uh, which were about 34 to $36 million. So there, uh, and and this is uh, if you want to think about inflation, well, inflation in Japan uh, has been pretty flat. There hasn't been a, a great deal of change in, in the Japanese yen over the last decades. So this is about one dollar to one dollar. Yeah. So I, I looked at I looked at your your yen, and then I looked at WWE to try to kind of get some comparisons here. So from 2011 to 2017, New Japan has allegedly gone from a billion yen to 1.2 to 1.7 to 2.2 to 2.7 to 3.2 to 4 million, 4 billion yen, um, which means this last year they would have grown about 25% year over year. And the CAGR, as George Barrows would love to say, which is just the compound annual growth rate, would be about 22%, 21.9, um, which just means if you took that 1 billion yen and then said, okay, I'm going to grow 21.9% every year. By the time you got to the last year, you'd be at that final year number of $4 billion. So a CAGR is good for looking at two points of time, a beginning and an end, but it kind of ignores what really happens in the middle of it. 
So if you, you know, go up and then go down, your Kager is going to be a little bit different than if you, you know, had chosen a subset of that. So uh, WWE, on the other hand, um, and this is going to go from 2010 to 2016 since I don't have 2017 fiscal numbers yet. WWE has gone from about $477 million to 483 to 484 to 507 to 542 to 658 to 729, which means they've grown about 6.2% Kager. And this last year has been a little higher. It's been more like 10.7. So both both of them have had a better, more recent year than their five, six, seven year trend. But WWE's growth is in the 6% range. And New Japan's growth is in the 22% annual range. So really big difference in terms of um, changing your marketplace. Of course, if we were to look at a subsection of WWE revenue, maybe live events plus merchandise or something like that, we might have a little bit more of a a like-to-like. There was a great breakdown. I think it was in the Observer of the New Japan data where it actually even said what percentage of it was TV rights and what percentage of it was live live events. and so I, I didn't get a chance to kind of go over that with you before the show. But that was interesting, too, because it said basically how much they were getting of that, you know, $4 billion, 4 billion yen, <laughs> correction, in um, live events versus on television revenue and um, kind of what that split looked like for them. And, and what I, I was just... important to remember, too, like if we're, we're talking about the period of 2010 to 2016 for WWE. And during that time, they've they, they cannibalized their pay-per-view business to make that more direct to consumer. So they're taking in all of that revenue that they used to split, but the profits are about the same. Yeah. And that's the thing is this is neither of these are big profit measures. So, um, we're not even looking at that. Uh, one other kind of measurement point I would give people would be that there was when in, in 2010, 2011 ish, if you were to compare what was the value of WWE and what was the value of new Japan, we're talking about like a $9 million U.S. company to a $477 million company. So it was about a 2% the size. That number is now a $35 million company to a $730 million company, which is about 5%. So you can say basically as a, as a comparison factor, they've more than two and a half times. They're more than doubled what they've been in a comparison period. But at the same time, we're talking about a company that is either 2% the size or 5% the size. And it just speaks volumes to just how different it is between where WWE is operating and what WWE is getting in television rights and even what they're, you know, what the what the um, the margin of error they have on legal fees can be <laughs> compared to what w, what New Japan is doing. And so it is funny. It's easy for New Japan to say, you know, throw throw the pea pods at the giant and say, hey, we're taking you on. We're coming into your backyard. But they really have quite a ways to go to be of the same size and stature and um, ability to leverage their revenue stream and their operating balances to make it comparable. Yeah, I guess all, all it would take is somebody from the U.S. Uh, trying to put New Japan other than access, some some bigger network being interested in them, uh, having them on their TV. But uh, that's that's not happening anytime soon anyway. So here, here we go. So the um, the company grossed three point eight five nine billion yen, which is about thirty four million dollars. Um, they had a nine hundred twenty six million yen profit, which is about eight point one million. Um, the revenue was up eighteen percent, and profits were up ninety nine percent. They only have about sixty one full time em- employees, and um, they said that the revenue was two billion yen in tickets, so about one half tickets. 1.2 billion yen in merchandise and 600 
56 million yen in television rights fees plus New Japan revenue. So if you were to split that out, it would be, you know, 50% uh, tickets, 25% merchandise, and then less than 25%. I'm uh, like 12%. No, I'm doing my math to- per- terribly here. I'll do here. a pie chart later. I'll tweet it out. <laughs> yes, exactly. But um, it, it, interesting, you know, it's it's cool to see uh, that level of detail and information and be able to start comparing between New Japan and uh, and WWE. Uh, WWE. Yeah, I like that a lot. I think that's really cool. All right. So, yes, the numbers at least do do equal 100 percent. And so the percentages are seven, 52 percent, 31 percent and 17 percent. So is this, in, this is in the observer, right? It is in the observer. Is this, will, is this stuff that that Dave found firsthand or is this like from some Japanese publication that they uh, they broke this down? I'm sure it is Dave taking information that somebody else has done in a translation and and brought it um, brought it to credit, them. Is there credit where he got it from? No, not source? at all. No, oh. not at all. Not at all. So, um, yeah, so I'm posting it in their document here and you can, uh, you can play with it a little bit more, but yeah, some, some really good information. This, this covers August through July of uh, the year. So it's a little different fiscal year, which is why I say it's probably more accurate to take WWE's fiscal year and almost go back almost a full year to kind of compare one to the other. And, um, Hey, it's a, a good example of a company that has turned itself around in five, six years here, has doubled its size and size. It's doubled its profits and um, is mainly operating with a Japanese base of, you know, um, performers. It also says a lot about just how difficult it is to grow a streaming subscription service. And so whether you are ROH, whether you're Flow Slam, whether you're WWN, whether you are Progress or Rev Pro or whoever, it is tough to find the number of consumers needed to make this a a um, a, a true revenue stream generation. And so and I, with, I think like the kind of like draws back on what I was saying earlier about how there's, there's all this media and there's all this interest and there's all these people, for example, updating Wikipedia pages for wrestling related things. I mean, it's just something I'm starting to learn or questions that there's kind of a deceiving activity of interest that would make you think maybe maybe that's the sort of thing that that confused flow sports to think that they could get 50,000 subscribers because look at all this activity that's going on here look at all these people talking and there's all these wrestling news media sites that are you know supported by actual visitors so why can't we capture a lot of this and maybe it's just these there's some people who are really active and less so uh you know unique people who want to spend money if, if, if you follow what i'm saying there Oh, absolutely. And and what's interesting, too, is when you go back to those old WWE affinity graphs and they used to break it down to, you know, what's a casual fan, what's a hardcore fan and whatnot. I think if you were to look at the drop off rates on each of these, especially when it came to WWE Network subscriptions, you know, I think the, the percentage of people that have been subscribers from day one, incredibly high percentage of prescription of subscriptions of people who have, you know, tried it out and then walked away and they're content to walk away enormous now it does and, it does taste like medicine sometimes uh and and to that effect you know i don't see it in our our document here which surprises me but this shocking email that someone shared with us and i validated that the yeah, email yeah. was real because at the bottom it says click here if you'd like to read this email on a website so i clicked there and it went to a ww website and it showed me the same offer so this wasn't a photoshopped image and this image can you just describe what it said so we, we got a uh Someone noticed me on Twitter that they were offered uh, 
to just buy Survivor Series. You can watch Survivor Series right on the W Network for $24.99. No monthly commitment. So remember, with monthly commitment, it's $9.99. But for $25, you can watch only the pay-per-view. So, so basically, I, so basically, what they're going to do for you is for an extra fifteen dollars, they will. You won't be able to watch anything else on the network, but they will cancel your subscription for you, so you don't have to worry about it rolling over. Essentially, that's the value that they're offering. Yeah, when you this, think about it. it, and and there's so many like, I, I almost yeah, as silly as it sounds, I almost wanted to lead with the story because to me, this is the most WrestleNomic story of all yeah. time because it's about pay per view price elasticity, consumer preference, um, you know, churn rates. It's all the things that we love to say. If if you're doing WrestleNomics bingo, the single story is like the perfect microcosm of uh of what we talk about but essentially it's saying that and i, I tweeted it out uh, a picture of this and i just wrote wwe network offering per pay-per-view non-subs and a lot of feedback you know from people mostly being bewildered by the idea of someone who's sophisticated enough to use the wwe network but not sophisticated enough to sign up and just cancel and if you were to take drop one of the digits off right if you were to say it's two ninety nine or four ninety nine, I'd get it, right? If I offered you because it's 50, less than the monthly, yeah. Price. If I said for half the price of a network subscription, you can watch this event, or a quarter of the price, yeah. and you don't have to be a subscriber, I, I well might sign up for something like that in the future because there's times when I'm like, you know what, I've gone a full month without really doing much of my network, and I know I'm not the average user because I know the average user is a super served user who does lots but I also think I might be in that 25% quartile of people that would be like hey I would even come back to you or stay with you longer because it feels dirty to me to spend $10 just like I spent on Netflix on the on the network but it doesn't feel dirty to me to spend two and a half bucks or five bucks because that's a sandwich that's a hot dog at a, a Tampa gas station uh, you know so like I'm okay with that and so it made a lot of sense if it was $22 or $3 or $5. So the only thing I was curious about is why did this person get this offer? So the, the question number one is they obviously have a behavior that has yeah. triggered something in their analytics thing. And so I'm guessing this is a person who um, may burn a lot of email accounts to be able to flip on and off a network subscription. They might be one of these people that – drive some of the churn number, though if you think about the churn number, the churn number is people that were paid subscribers that are quitting. Churn is not just the people who sign up and cancel before the free trial is done. So that doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but I mean, it, it's obviously that they thought some of these people, maybe they just don't like canceling or they, they're tired of canceling so often, like you said. But do so you think, I, I don't know that um, WWE knows that, that you hold multiple accounts. Is that what you're saying? Well, that's what I'm saying. It makes no sense because you can't even necessarily identify that behavior, right? Yeah. I mean, the only thing that you'd wonder is, was was this someone who literally signed up for an account and then canceled the next day after a pay-per-view? And so they they targeted the accounts that only were active for two days or less? I don't know. <laughs> so that that's interesting. And then the second one being, what is the right price for them to offer? Now, I can understand that they would feel – that they might get in a lot of trouble with the in-demands or the whomevers that are still selling traditional pay-per-views if they go out to all those people and say, by the way, we'll undercut you down to $5 or $2.5. And the one thing we have seen is that pay-per-views do seem to be a little bit correlated with the pay-per-view quality, right? That was Dave's big finding in the last quarter report where pay-per-view buys were up like 40% and we had the same number of pay-per-views as we did a year ago. 
Network subs were not up. Um, sub decrease was almost exactly the same year over year, but it suggested the people that do do variable pay-per-view buying do in fact get excited by a Samoa Joe versus Brock Lesnar match. And so there is that element to say that there is a a group of consumers that spend money on pay-per-views and they pick and choose their points. So again, they could have maybe tied that email account to someone who in the past has bought a pay-per-view. Right. That's and, what I was going to say. Like, could they could they in any way identify? A, they, do they get that data from the pay per view carriers? Though, like, do do you get to see if I buy a pay per view over cable TV? Do they ever get my name? <laughs> so, Nielsen and other companies, what they sometimes do is that they will spend a lot of money, and they will offer a service to certain providers where they will try and map certain behaviors to certain other people. So they might say, I have a consumer loyalty card. And I will then try to attach what you do to other things that I think you do and create like a customer profile for you that I can track. Now, do I think that they're doing that? I don't know. If you think of a a cable company, of course they know who bought that pay-per-view, right? They have that person's name. We also know they don't like to share that with anyone. But they do share things oftentimes if you pay for it. So it's very possible that WWE did pay for it at some point to be able to do some marketing. And I know as someone who um, has bought traditional pay-per-view years ago, we I got the email from someone in Canada too, by the way, if that. Yeah. And that was going to be my last point is, is that as someone who bought traditional pay-per-views, I get flyers in the mail sometimes saying, hey, this pay-per-view is coming up. You can order it. At the same time, Canada, the way it is being very strange with the Rogers account, in order to get the WWE Network, you have to then essentially get the Rogers account and then sign in to it. So it's very possible that's very tightly linked between the two. Um, also, U.S. dollar versus Canadian dollar, they both use that dollar symbol. So the fact that it says twenty four ninety nine, we don't know whether that's Canadian dollars or U.S. dollars. Um, it, it's interesting to me. It's it's intriguing. Obviously, I'm thinking it's just like any of the other surveys or analytics they do, where they're just trying to, you know, they're throwing stuff at the wall to see if they can figure out something that works. I don't know whether they would have a big enough sample size to really make a big conclusion about it, but uh, it really intrigued me that they were trying that, and it uh, it especially intrigued me that you know they basically were saying, "What if people are idiots?" Um, yeah, and, and, but the, and that's the challenge with any kind of internet thing where we can say, "God, people are idiots." Who would ever do that? <laughs> but then you go back to WrestleMania 2014 and how many people bought traditional pay per view because they didn't trust what was being sold as a as a bill of goods at the WWE Network at the time. And so we know that there's just a group of people that either cannot or will not subscribe to the network. And some of them do buy pay-per-view traditionally. But – and I guess you know it, it, is, it is a good selling point to say, hey, what's 50 bucks right now? I'll sell you for 25 But it's foolish in the sense that your distribution method appears to be the WWE network, which is basically saying what's happening here. That's like being charged an uh, entrance fee to Target just because you're used to paying an entrance fee to Costco. And so the, I'm looking at the Xfinity site as an example of a, a cable provider that's uh, going to put Survivor Series on on pay per view. My and cable I, provider. Oh, is that is, you have X, Xfinity over there? I sure do. Um, so there, it's forty four ninety nine. Maybe it's a ten dollars more for HD. It doesn't say here though. So what, wouldn't the cable provider or in demand or whoever be upset about this? Like it's they're they're selling it for twenty four ninety nine, which is probably close to what their cut would be, right? So it's basically they're they're cutting out the, the the split to the to the cable provider and just going direct to consumer. Yeah, and that's why I would say that might be the other reason they're doing twenty four ninety nine. If you do two ninety nine or four ninety nine, the cable company is going to be irate at you. And you think they're they're okay with even this? 
I don't know. I think this is a small scale trial, so it's hard for it's really hard to say mm-hmm. what the point is. Um, and again, if you are WWE Network in Canada, Rogers gets some money. Remember, WWE Network in Canada is exclusive through Rogers, so Rogers is already getting a kickback through that deal. So they might be a little bit more ambivalent. And, and maybe this is something that was only offered to Canadians. You're suggesting. You know, I would love to see a larger sample size of who got this offer and what they might have triggered in their life to do it. Should also be mentioned that um, WWE sent out some weird emails that day, including one to me saying, um, hey, we'll give you a free month. And then immediately after saying, hey, we apologize. You're already a subscriber. Thanks for being a subscriber. We didn't mean to email you that. So P.S. You're invited to the WWE Business Partner Summit. Yeah, <laughs> but no, I really got an email that said that. And I think a lot of us got this kind of apology email. So the fact that they sent out this twenty four ninety nine, there's always that one in fifty chance that maybe this was all a mistake, or they, you know, pressed some special mail merge button and they went to some scenario they never meant to go to. Yeah. Well, they didn't create this this graphic accidentally. Like this, they, this is a, this is a graphic. This is not just text. This is no, it a, is a and, piece of marketing. And like I said, it's on the website now to not screw with this person's account. I didn't click the, you know, let's go ahead here and look deeper into it. Because the other question no one's really answered is how does this work? Is it a special login which just deactivates after two days? Is this a different, you know, profile site? Like this is a brand new offering. Do you have access to everything on the network or just the pay-per-view? Is it just a live feed access? What is this? So, you know, I think this is something we talked about before is like, you know, for example, with their DVD releases, like when they put out a new DVD feature or something, it's not on the network right away. And I've I've kind of suggested, well, hey, wouldn't it be cool if you could buy the do like a VOD one time purchase and be able to watch this DVD feature, you know, whereas physical media is dying and all that and people don't want to buy physical DVDs and stuff anymore. What if they could sell that thing through the, the network? And I think the answer we heard was that, well, maybe the technology's not really there yet for individual purchases, but this sure sounds like an individual purchase. Yeah, and and to me it would also seem like in the future we'll, you know, we will see that on a tiered network system is that essentially just like Amazon lets you, you know, download and watch things that you've already purchased, in theory WWE would be giving you that. And then much like Roku, I wouldn't be surprised if they even sold stupid screensavers and backgrounds, right? You know, Roku sells you. A, a screensaver uh, of Game of Thrones on the background there so that you can keep that. And at the same time, they do kind of like um, changes every month where they, you know, for when there's Super Bowl is coming up, it'll be a football related one and, and so forth. And so they'll like do temporary ones and then they have kind of a larger thing. And if the one thing we've learned from video games in the world of, of mobile transactions is that micro purchasing is a huge economy and a huge opportunity. And I think WWE re- regrets not being in that economy right now as much as they could be. They've seen a lot of it with Supercard already. And another thing somebody suggested to me is that this is uh, could be the beginning of them taking pay-per-views off of the nine ninety nine tier, I guess. I think there's, there's some people who have suggested to me that they think the WWE is going to when they come out with the uh, higher tier is going to make it so that nine, maybe, maybe WrestleMania and Royal Rumble won't be part of the 999 tier, but that they will be part of the higher tier. And I don't think that's going to happen. Um, I think 999 is going to provide all the pay-per-views at least until the point where there's multiple tiers. And then maybe eventually they can phase out that 999 price point and grandfather it into existing customers. And, and I think that'll be a, be a good strategy to, to, keep churn down and to keep retention is that you, you don't want to cancel your subscription because you want to stay grandfathered in at 999 but uh 
Yeah, I, Agreed. I, I don't see them taking any value away from the, the standard price point that they have now. I agree very much that the new tier will be significantly above ninety nine nine ninety nine. Netflix has already announced that they're raising their base tier, essentially. Um, so I don't think they should have to be anchored to nine ninety nine in the future. This was something I wrote about in that Seeking Alpha article I published a few weeks ago. Um, I don't know whether they will forever grandfather everyone in at nine ninety nine, or whether they might, you know, do a one dollar surcharge or something. Yeah, but I, I, I can see I, them I grandfathering people in for like a year. Yeah, and then exactly. Like, All right, after after such and such date, you're going to be up to eleven ninety nine or something. I I do agree with you in the sense of I think threatening people that to get back into the system, it's going to be more expensive. Um, that's important. I do wonder if that's going to drive more people to back to those free trial, you know, over overkill. And we see that because we have an idea of how many free trials exist at the end of every quarter. Um, and right now it's still only 70,000 to a hundred thousand. So, I mean, on, on a comparable basis, it's not as big as some people would think it would be where they're saying, you know, hundreds of thousands of people are doing this. Um, and it's what single digits of percent of their subscribers. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it is higher around WrestleMania and it's lower during the rest of the year and all those other things. And so you're right. It, it would be an interesting way for them to try to control that churn. What's bizarre is why is there 300,000 leaving and 280,000 gaining every quarter or whatever the numbers are. That seems really bizarre to a lot of people about why exactly is, are these the numbers that are kind of working around, but Hey, you can talk about the WWE network forever. Um, we don't have, always terrific numbers as you and I tried to prove during our live um, session to compare against for other streaming services. Uh, and we know that other people like flow slam um, ended up being tiny compared to WWE network. Um, there was actually a, a movement in the lawsuit with flow slam and WWN this past week. Um, actually two weeks ago. Um, I don't know if anyone noticed this <laughs> except for me, but um, the flow slam WWN was originally in a district court or I shouldn't say district. Um, district court. It was like in a county court in um in I think it was Travis County, Texas, and it got moved to basically U.S. District Court, um, which means at the very least I can now track it all through Pacer, and it's no longer trying to fax to a certain um, county official in Texas and try to get them to fax you back the records. So what's really nice now is we can start looking at those documents, you know, for ten cents a page, and um. There was some, you know, there was some filings that were done where basically uh, WWN is trying to move to basically get it thrown out of Texas court saying, hey, we're a Florida based company. We do most of our business not in Texas. All of almost all our events were held in Florida or other places. I've only been to Texas like twice to do business with you guys. Um, and then they mentioned, quote, the um, the Sal affidavit, um, Salim Hamoy. I don't know. I don't know exactly how to say the WWN owner's name, but um, he's Sal H. LH, yeah. Uh, the spreadsheet, which Flow Sports alleges contained misrepresentations and breached the agreement, was created in Florida and sent by WWN from Florida. The data contained in the spreadsheet was compiled by the now defunct Fine Line Hosting, a company in Florida. Um, and just again, they're they're very much pushing this whole residency element of it because they don't want to fly over there for all the lawsuits, for all the meet, you know, all the court dates and things like that. Uh, it'll be interesting to see whether or not it stays in court or not. I think a lot of it will have to do with where was the contract, what what state did they say would, you know, um, bind the the rules for for the lawsuit when they signed the contract originally. I will say that um, it should be in district court. You know, it's worth a lot of dollars. It's between people in different states, so forth. It makes sense for it to be, you know, much higher than a county court issue. Um, 
the also did a rule seven disclosure, which is something you have to file, which basically just says, does another publicly traded company own any of you? And WWN said no publicly held corporation holds more than 10% of our stock. Uh, I just mentioned that just in case people are, you know, ever kind of playing that conspiracy card that WWE secretly owns WWN and no one knows this or something of that nature. At least the way it's filed here, there's no evidence of something like that. You know, WWN is on their own and is a privately held company of themselves. But WWE does own a small piece of Flow Sports, doesn't it? They have invested in some of the funding, and I assume at some point Flow Sports, Flow Slam will have to um, do a similar Rule Seven disclosure. And when they do, maybe we will get some good insight into uh, what is the the structure of who owns what. Of course, it could always it's, be... It's, it's a $1 million investment as far as we know. That's what the SEC documents tell us. So I guess it's like, well, how many how many millions is Flow Sports worth? So you just divide $1 million by whatever Flow Sports would be worth. And I guess that would be the percentage that of, of Flow Sports that WWE owns. Yeah, but you can get into funny things about what is a million dollars because it's shares, right? You're buying shares, and if those shares go up or diluted or undiluted, or do they have the same voting rights as other shares? Do, or, or you know, do they have certain kind of um, things associated with them? I, I just don't know enough to say from a corporate disclosure standpoint how will that reflect. Again, it has to be ten percent or more of the stock, like you mentioned. So I, I would, don't. I would expect W owns less than ten percent of flows. I am positive they do. I'm positive they do. I mean, I think the brothers themselves probably own at least 50%. I'm sure they're controlling a, a majority stake. Um, Gabe did a, a Q&A, and one of his Q&As that he mentioned, I, I, I thought it was interesting that he actually tweeted out that Flow Slam really killed our exposure. And he was joking a lot about you know people saying, hey, wh- how would you feel if um, uh, we started another podcast on WWN, but we never talk about your product? I think kind of jabbing at Flow Slam, having their podcasts that would never talk about the WWN Evolve stuff. So uh, did you read any more of the, the Gabe Q&A? No, just what you showed me. Um, like, What do you think of, of him saying that Flow Slam killed their exposure? Because I wonder – what do you think more people were watching Evolve on Flow Slam? Or I guess he's saying that, that pe- more people were watching Evolve before Flow Slam than after – and even if subs for Flow Slam were only in the maybe two thousand range or you know one to two thousand, I think that's more than are watching evolve on a regular basis. Yeah, but I think I think there was an element of the Flow Slam pricing process that turned people off. Like you ended up getting the annual one, right? Yeah, and I know I'm I'm a exceptional case. Exactly, and that's my point. Is I think they found that it was really it was much like when WWE Network started, and they were doing the you know six months you have to be signed up for. And then you could do month to month, but it cost, I think, twenty four ninety nine. Key number there, right? I think it was twenty four ninety nine if you wanted to get a one month subscription with no was guarantee. The network? Yeah, there was did some. Did they ever offer that? Are you sure? Yeah, I think they did. Um, okay. What What had happened is when they first did that changeover in August of twenty seventeen, where they started to really change a lot. Or twenty seventeen, August of twenty fourteen, where they changed over a lot of that six month commitment language. I think at one point there was a uh, a special tier they offered. Which cost more? I think it was twenty four ninety nine, and you had no commitment to it. And so they reported on it for one quarter, saying, "Hey, here's how many people took it us off on the offer," and it was infinitesimal. It was this tiny percentage of people that did it, and so they killed it off right after that. But yeah, at first people complained that I don't want to sign up for six months, so then they said, "Okay, we'll give you a one time only tier." But I think it was a lesson learned that. People are loath to make long-term commitments, even if they know it's better for them in the long term. And, you know, it's like Richard Thaler 
economics here, you know, human behavior and economics. We are not rational people. So even if we know, hey, I'm going to buy 12 events this year, we would some reason prefer to spend 12 times a higher price than being offered the entire thing for one year because we are so risk averse and we also we value that money differently. Um, and it's a good example. You know, they Richard there has all these examples about, you know, uh, the way that wines um, appreciate in value over time and how people will then want to still drink the wine rather than sell the wine uh, as if for some reason the money is worth less to them than what they're actually valuing it at um, just because they already have it in their pocket rather than they're being offered it. So it's it's this weird phenomenon that, that you know, won Richard Thaler a Nobel Prize for, for basically trying to talk about all the bizarreness that happens in human behavioral economics. And I think we're seeing it here too, which is, you know, people just didn't want to spend a lot of money for a flow slam service if they had to spend it all up front and they weren't quite always sure what they were getting. And it was a lot different than saying, hey, I want to buy this Evolve card right now. Now, WWN has certainly played quite a lot. I, I think it's funny to me that they have this spreadsheet and this usage and they had so many problems with them trying to um, give the quote-unquote right numbers to FlowSlam when they were a company that had such a complex behavior where they'd say, well, if you bought it the day of, we'll charge you this. And if you bought it this time, we'll charge you this. And sometimes we'll offer these two free events if you do this. And if you try to watch for too long on the pirated stream, we'll do this. And I was just like, for a company that kind of portrayed themselves as having a complex pricing behavior, they seem to have no data analytics um, and control ability. So it's just kind of funny to me that 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 contradiction of, of things. Can you click on this link that I just dropped in the, in the doc? Holy cow. I, in... Um in searching for, I did a, like a Google for W Network six month six month commitment twenty four ninety nine to see if I could find an Wait, offer. It, and, yeah, uh, but but what I found instead was just like a link to so the actual like, to the actual twenty four dollar one time charge. Yeah, so it looked like looks like anybody could do this. And it says access of all WW Network through Monday, November twentieth. Oh. No monthly subscription required. No commitment. You get the Survivor Series live. Mm-hmm. Wow. So you're getting access to the network for like two two days or something. Yeah, I breaking news right here. And then at the very bottom it says subscription will end on November twenty first, two twenty seventeen at six a.m. Eastern time. So this is this is not like an individual purchase, sort of like I was suggesting before. This is like okay, you get access to the network for a very limited time. Yeah. So in theory, you can what... watch Takeover on on VOD after you watch Survivor Series Live, for example. So I, I will give some defense for this, and here's how. Um, it's an idea that The Economist uses a lot, the magazine, and it, it's a form of anchoring. What they do is they'll show you three deals. They'll say, subscribe for a month and save $4.99. Subscribe for a year and save $78.99. And what it is is it's – the point is they never want you to subscribe for a month. They want to anchor you into thinking, oh my gosh, this one-month deal is not very good, but this one-year deal is fantastic. I should do that. I'm going to save so much more. Because sometimes they'll do it as like uh, – it's it's the way they supersize drinks, right? You know, they'll be like a small is a – is – four ninety nine, a medium is five twenty nine, and a large is five ninety nine. And the difference between this cup size of a small and a medium is so big that you're like, why would I ever get that small cup and save thirty cents? I might as well just go with a medium. Right? Because what they're doing is they're anchoring you to think, oh, 
I relatively I'm getting such a better deal by going up one. And the reality is they never are trying to sell that smallest one. They just want you to be driven to the next price point that is a better deal for them. And so here what I think they're doing is they're trying to drive people towards the 999. What's bizarre to me is that they don't – the way you really should do this is at the bottom in big letters. It should say, or subscribe for 999 for 30 days. You know, um, Here they're almost hiding the fact that they're selling you the 999 opportunity rather than – If what, that was going to be the approach, they should be publicizing this as much as they can. Yeah. So that's what's really weird to me is that to me this seems like someone who read half an economics paper and then jumped out and started doing stuff without actually finishing the whole theory of why you would do this kind of behavior. But um yeah, it appears just to basically be get 2 days access to the WWE network for 24.99 and I really struggle to understand this. Maybe they just want to prove to Vince that wrestling fans are completely irrational. And maybe that's all this is is to tell him that it doesn't matter what you do there's a group of people that are so irrational they'll just do stuff or that this is what you spend your um maybe they're just trying to get the indian market with pirated credit cards and so yeah. they, they just want people who uh, <laughs> i'm sure there is some sort of semi-irrational aversion to the monthly commitment but at 15 dollars extra i don't you know it doesn't make a lot it's of sense. so insane <laughs> it's it's so baffling to me i just I can't get my head around this. Like I, like I say, the anchoring argument with the Economist magazine, at least I kind of get, but it's not, it's not being done right. Because like the, the example I've read is, like you go to a, a wine store, liquor store, and you see like you see all the wine laid out, and you see uh, this bottle's ten dollars, this bottle's fifteen dollars, this bottle's twenty dollars. Then up up on the top shelf, there's the hundred dollar bottle of wine, and the idea is nobody's going to buy the hundred dollar bottle of wine. That that bottle of wine is just there to make all the other bottles look like a better deal yeah exactly i we have a really nice liquor shop um in town here called certix and they have like you know the thousand and two thousand dollar liquor in the glass case and i always think of it as the only time they must sell any of that is when the big rock stars you, you know like when u2 is coming touring through town and the roadies are sent to go you know buy something really special and then they go and they buy you know two thousand dollar bottle of liquor for whoever some big rock star because they don't care but that's the only time I can imagine them selling half of that stuff or when, you know, the hedge fund managers in New York, you know, the way the strip club economy used to work where so many of those companies were basically based on the idea of like there's no such thing as an upper limit because there's always going to be someone willing to pay if they don't think they're actually the end payer. So if it's a corporate credit card or whatever. Wow. Well, that is that is very interesting. Um, other completely derailed your uh, legal update. But. No, I was just going to say the other legal updates are pretty simple. Um, uh, the. Anderson versus Bullard, which is better known as the Titus O'Neil swerved lawsuit, where Titus O'Neil kicked a cameraman for the swerved prank show in the hand, allegedly, after Paige shocked him with a cattle prod. Um, that, that, that's, that's what this is over, a kick to the hand? Well, he, he basically implies that he damaged his hand very badly and threatened to kill him, and that he was afraid for his life and had to leave the building. Um some of the filings that started to come out, again, it was elevated from a California, you know, kind of like an LA case all the way to a district court case. So we were able to see a lot more of the filings came out was basically that the WWE liaison said I had to approve all the pranks ahead of time. I never approved this prank. Um, I was off in the building doing something else when this all happened. Um, there in, was, in that context, this obviously happened before the uh, Titus O'Neil and Vince McMahon thing at the Daniel Bryan retirement uh, yes. raw night, right? So it does sound in that context. I guess I didn't know that detail that that's 
that's part of what the complaint was, that he kicked him in the hand. He could see Vince McMahon thinking, oh, now you're grabbing me without uh, permission or something like that. And, well, what's like, funny is is so the the uh, the cameraman has tried to allege that, quote, WWE knows that uh, Titus O'Neil has a history of violent outbursts and anger control problems. But they have not ever really substantiated why they say that and what they're pointing to when they say that. So, I mean, again, if we were to, you know, hear, oh, here's domestic abuse allegations against someone and i am absolutely not saying that in any way about him i mean you could then say okay here's a credible history of a criminal record against a person this is why we can make this inference this inference but i've never heard or seen anything of that record so this idea that you know titus o'neill has a well-known violent outburst streak i i struggle to say that's been substantiated in court filings in any way so far beyond just the guy saying that that's a thing um, anyways, this whole course case got dismissed finally. And the reason it got dismissed was basically they decided California was not the, the jurisdiction to hear this case because the event happened in Virginia. Titus lives in Florida. WWE is a Delaware incorporated company that is based in Connecticut. Um, the only is this case over, or they'd have to refile and they would have state. to refile. They'd have to refile. And, and basically, is there, he was, is there any hint of whether they're going to, it's unclear. It's unclear. Uh, I mean, the the Uranus Productions, which is the name of the swerved um, production company that was doing this, signed a contract with WWE that was included in one of the filings. And I think it said that would be like based on the court, the um, the laws of California. But they're like um, Titus O'Neil is not subject to this deal between WWE and them because Titus O'Neil never signed that contract was not part of that that situation and of course Titus O'Neil is an independent contractor and so there's all these weird filings about you know the Titus brand has existed in California and they used examples from his his Twitter account to basically be like he did business here when he quote promoted the Titus brand and so it was a pretty flimsy jurisdiction case in my opinion and yes they would have an opportunity to refile it in either Florida or Connecticut or Virginia where the accident actually happened i think he doesn't want to because he is based in LA and he doesn't want to you know travel a bunch um but the judge threw it out the judge made a decision so uh it, the next question will be would he refile i think he would because it seems like he's you know pursuing this um and i think he just wants that settlement you know i think he wants that money and I think there's also a time frame for when you can claim an injury, like a statute of limitations. And so I think we might be butting up against that a little bit too. Uh, so that might be why he's pushing on this. And so if, say, he does get a settlement, who's going to pay that? WWE or Titus O'Neil or who? Because WWE was also named as a co- co-claimant, mm-hmm. I would assume WWE would probably be the one that would, would settle it, is basically give him some go-away money. And then, you know, it so, was so interesting. It's a liability to WWE, not yeah. Titus. Yeah. What was interesting in the WWCT case, which was filed, um, they, they refiled. Remember, I talked a while ago about those in-camera affidavits that they had to do for all the different wrestlers saying, giving individual claims for what they were actually suing WWE for. And in-camera, by the way, does not have anything to do with photography devices, as we learned. Yes, it does not. It just means that they have to basically testify in an official setting. You know it, it, that this is what they're claiming. So one of them was Marty Jannetty's claim, and at one point Marty Jannetty made a reference to the fact that there's the Charles Austin case where a jobber got um, got paralyzed, 
And there was a large money claim that went against WWE and then they kind of appealed it and it went down. But it was still a large millions and millions of dollars claim that was paid to the Charles Austin family in Florida. And a portion of that was said to be paid by Shawn Michaels and by Marty Jannetty. It was they they personally owed money and then WWE also owed money. And I always wondered, well, Shawn Michaels made a lot of money. I can see him paying this. But how the hell did Marty Jannetty pay this? Because it was like half a million dollars or a million dollars he owed. And Marty Jannetty makes reference in the CTE lawsuit that WWE basically paid it for him and then held it against his royalties. And so, yeah, so basically in the end, WWE paid to make it go away. And then... And now Marty Jannetty gets no royalties until yeah, ba- enough royalties to pay that off. Yeah, basically, I mean, it was in the early '90s, so who knows how they decided to, you know, deal with that debt over time? They might have just written off the debt at a certain point when the insurance company probably um, they're probably co-insured for some of this risk, and so they got some of the settlement. And I don't even know if they ever, you know, really intended Marty Jannetty had to pay it as much as it's a, you know, it's a threatening way to, you know, hold an employee in control of you, right? So you can say, hey. I can take money out of your paycheck for the rest of your life to pay off this thing. And we see that sometimes where, you know, someone will get some ridiculous settlement and we know they're never going to pay that amount in their life, but they're going to come up with a payment plan that says I have to pay you a thousand dollars a month for the rest of my life. So I imagine that's more what kind of happened is something that said, you know, Marty Gennetti, we're going to take this much out until you've filled this balance. But who knows? Maybe there is a giant negative balance in the Marty Gennetti royalties case. Um, where he's still paying off this. But yeah, so that could happen too, where WWE would just cover it. I would think in this situation... You should ask him on Facebook. Yeah, that goes so well, right? I hope he doesn't get hacked accidentally when he tries to respond to me. Um, but yeah, so that that was interesting to me that I think um, they'll continue to pursue this, in my opinion, just till they can get a settlement. Though I think getting thrown out of California court hurts him a lot because A, that was home turf. B, that was probably friendly turf. And um, C... WWE and and Titus are now ready for all this. So it's not like you can kind of blindside them. They're now they've shown they're willing to fight this thing. Um, And then the only other thing was in the Levy uh, Bagwell WWE CTR uh, royalties lawsuit. There was some interesting kind of back and forth that's been going on about um, how Scott Levy ended up with the lawyer that he got ended up with. Um, Because what WWE is basically saying is that a lawyer cannot come up to you and say, I would like to sue on your behalf on this sort of thing. You still kind of have to engage that lawyer yourself. That's that's It's that whole ambulance chaser type of thing. There's laws against solicitation, essentially, is what I'm trying to get at. And it was is that not the case, because, like, you know, I, in, in this area, maybe in, in a lot of others, we have, you know, all these, all these ads that are like, hurt in a car, call this guy. Yep, but the difference would be hurt in a car, call this guy, versus... I looked up through police records. You had an accident, and now I'm I am calling you unsolicited to try to be your lawyer because you're still making contact with them. When when Isn't you, Kairos doing the same thing, Kairos did do the same thing, but that's not the lawyer in the um in the royalties case, right? So the question was, how did he get this lo- ro- lawyer in the royalties case? And so they've gone as far as to basically like subpoena the phone records and try to say this guy called you, didn't he? And he that's how you ended up making contact with him. And Levy's kind of responding back with like, no, 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 no. I, I found out because I want to do this Kairos thing and I wanted to do this thing. And then somehow they got in touch and they're like, well, how did you hear about this lawyer? And he's like, I don't remember. So he's using a lot of I don't remember. And then there's this whole thing about how they had a meeting one time with this lawyer and Levy brought his ex-wife with him 
and it, she was his ex-wife at the time. And so there was a debate about was this kind of a privileged conversation or not because they were someone there who was not a member of this lawsuit, was not you know, a So WWE is really fighting semantics right now on some of this lawyer stuff, and it's not always going so great <laughs> for everything. And then there was the hilarious kind of deposition uh, excerpts that I posted where it was the whole Jerry McDivitt asking Raven about whether he knew what a jobber was. And uh, uh, Scott Levy basically being quizzed on, you know, why are you doing this lawsuit and what were you promised? And um, why did you not tell any of your friends also to get involved in this? And basically they're just trying to show that the lawyer himself might be trying to basically advocate and do this lawsuit rather than it's them kind of them acting as a lawyer for those people. Yeah, someday we need to do like a, a Russellnomics theater episode, which is like will be the the best of Jerry McDivitt, yeah. where we just reenact uh, various uh, legal scenes from from the life of Jerry oh, they, McDivitt defending. WWE. There was some there was some big time back and forth fighting going on in some of that deposition. It's a very you know if you like legal depositions, it's a very entertaining read. I'll probably retweet it today just to, for anybody who might have missed it a couple weeks ago when I was going through and posting all of that. It's pretty entertaining. Uh, L.A. is going to host the Survivor Series in 2018. Um, intriguing to me, just when you look at all the cities that have hosted the Survivor Series in the last 10 years, I went through and made the list. Houston, Toronto, Atlanta, St. Louis, Boston, Indianapolis, New York City, Miami, Washington, D.C., and Boston. I mean, pretty varied. I thought it was interesting that, you know, that's a, a top-tier list of cities that they've gone around the whole U.S. with. And so bringing it back to L.A., of course, there's all the discussion about, you know, L.A. had SummerSlam for years and then New York kind of took over SummerSlam and the question about, you know, what were they going to give to L.A.? So I wonder whether this is a one-off for L.A. or whether they're going to start going to them a lot. Maybe try to make this a tradition like it is for SummerSlam in Brooklyn. Uh, or then they had um they had SummerSlam in, in L.A. for consecutive years, too. Didn't yes. They? I mean, I 13 and 14 Maybe before that too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, that uh, there's been some debates about this Sami Zayn versus Roman Reigns as a draw uh, thing. I about how show business and you know is Sami Zayn a draw or not a draw? And I want to just kind of clarify one piece, which is a lot of this is based on data that I compiled, and you helped me compile it too. So I, I shouldn't say it was just me, but you and I compiled. Let's say um, we took all the Observer newsletter data. Is that really where it's coming from? Like uh, a spreadsheet that we'd done? That I did, yeah. Yeah. I took all the... Mm-hmm. We're, we're referring to a, some, a tweet from the Voices of Wrestling account. Uh, I, th- I think from Joe. But... Uh, yeah. yeah. Where he he shows a, a, a list of um, the top five 2016 house show singles programs. So just 2016 average attendance over six matches. And num- number one is listed as Zayn and, and Seth Rollins with about 5,000 on average. Uh, number two, Zayn and Owens, about 4,800 on average. Number three, Roman and Seth, about 4,600. Number four, AJ and Seth, about 4,600. Number five, Dean and Seth, about 4,600. Yeah, so on December 22nd, 2016, I published um, North American Live Event WWE Attendance 2016 through 26, 2006 through 2016 by Last Match Feud. And uh, attendance based on results from the Wrestling Observer Newsletter – I looked at the house shows. I looked at um, just the last match on the house show, which meant if Brock Lesnar, for instance, when Brock Lesnar versus Randy Orton happened in Chicago, that was not the last match. So that did not get credited to either Randy Orton or Brock Lesnar, even if they had an effect on the show. 
So it's a flawed data set. I'll say that straight off the top. That's all it ever was. And so what I really wanted to understand is who had done a whole lot of house show headlining and what were the feuds in each year for the house show headlines. So I looked at 2006 through 2016. I looked at how many times were people in different, you know, house show things. And it's amazing when you look at like John Cena, who had well over 500 house shows that he main evented during that time. The next closest is Randy Orton. The next closest after that, it was Big Show. No, not someone who necessarily you think of. And the next closest after that was Edge, who stopped headlining in 2011. Just Okay, I see, I see that the data is from your yeah. blog that that's linked in the doc yeah. here. Okay. So, so, you know, this goes all the way down to Kevin Thorne, the one house show in 2006 that I credited him with is headlining, obviously, in some kind of a tag match or something. So then I looked up what the average attendance was for each of these shows. And then I even went through to figure out, was it a singles match or a tag match? Because obviously, if you're the spirit squad and you're in a tag match, there's a big difference between that and being, you know, a singles guy. And, and a lot of times, for instance, when they might go to like Mexico or something, um, they, they and I think the thing we need to keep in mind here, too, uh, maybe I should wait until you, you're finished, but that um, I don't know that people know what the main events are i think there's no there's no question that the, that the stars that who's going to be there is advertised that is at least is advertised on w.com like if i click on a random house show on w.com where i can get info about it and buy tickets they do show me a screen with with faces with like profile pictures of, of the wrestlers on it so i can get an idea of who's going to be there w.com never tells you what the matches are you might be able to find some matches that are being advertised and in local advertisements, whether it's on the, the venue's website or in radio advertising or whatever. But I think in, in a lot of cases, in a lot of house shows, there are never any matches announced whatsoever. There are names announced, but there, in a lot of house shows, there, there aren't even matches announced. So what, what I'm saying is if we're going to look at which, which uh, main events are, are drawing best, I, I can't tell you with confidence that any of these matches were actually advertised. No, no. But what I do find is how few people are in the main events of shows consistently. There's less than 20 people that did over 100 house shows over the last 10 years in the main event in the U.S. and Canada. There's less than 30 people probably uh, who did more than like 20. So one part of this when I looked at this was to not say, okay, it's definitely uh, uh, this person is a draw because they were advertised for a house show. But I do believe that you can make a pretty strong argument that, hey, you know what? Seamus in 2000 and – let's see here. Seamus in 2015 – let me just pull this up. Uh, 2015 did 15 house show main events and he did 16 in 2016. And if I were to compare that to other people, that's less than Roman Reigns. It's less than Seth Rollins. But it's a little bit – and it's less than John Cena. But it's, a, it's a, about the same as Randy Orton. It's about the same as Big Show. Um, it's about the same as Kane. Um, and it's less than Bray Wyatt. So I can at least make an argument. Maybe I can slot him in vaguely into was he one of the very top guys or not one of the very top guys. And then when I did my actual attendance metrics, I tried to break down how many times did people face each other. So, you know, John Cena versus Randy Orton in 2014, they had 31 live events and they averaged 6,100 people at those live events. 27 singles they had, they averaged almost 6,000 people. And the four tag matches they had, they averaged almost 7,000 people. Again, not mark to market because, hey, these are different markets. But generally, the same people are in the house shows a lot at the very top. And so generally, the headliners are going to usually be about the same people. And so you can say something about the fact that 
when these people were being pushed in this part of the year, maybe it's better. But again, timing in the year makes a difference. Was it January to April or was it December? Yeah. Was it November? Where was it? And again, I only to U.S. and Canada house shows because I didn't want to have, you know. And did you did you make any adjustments here for like December 26th to January 1st? Not exactly. Um, I did not. I, and w- so what I'm alluding to is that the, to the holiday tour from, which is usually, I think this year actually is going to start on Christmas, but it's usually December 26th to December 31st. They do this holiday tour, which it looks like they get a lot of people to buy tickets as Christmas gifts, and the attendances during that period are are always among the highest for a house show during the year. And this is where they'll go to big markets. They'll go to, like, Madison Square Garden and Chicago and things like that, and they'll do some of the biggest house show attendances of the year, kind of regardless of who's the main event or who's on it. So when I published this data, it was before the Christmas tier of 2016, so I can at least say the 2016 data doesn't include that, but no, other years it would. Um, I did find it wasn't quite as um, skewing as you might think it would be just because there's only a couple of those shows. And so if, you know, you're dealing with 30 live events and now I'm up to 33, it's just not enough to make a huge difference. But, yeah, if you're going from like five live events to eight live events, yeah, it's going to make a big difference. Um, The other thing about this was I did do a version of this graph where I took out the the uh, Brock Lesnar matches where I said if Brock Lesnar was on your card I don't even include the attendance in that show and that did change some of the data the last part of this is I didn't publish this data as an article saying here's my conclusion I think this is really important people should look at it I just put this data out there mainly because it was something I was looking at and thinking about and I wanted to get some feedback from people to say how could I improve this data and that's when people said hey you should do this with Brock Lesnar hey you should do this with this way Instead, what happened was Dave picked up on this article or this this blog entry and Dave published it by taking a different result than I ever intended. My intended result was to basically say, here's who does a lot of live events and here's how those events went. So that you would say AJ versus Dean Ambrose had 34 live events and they averaged 3,400 people. Dean Ambrose versus Kevin Owens had 19 live events and they averaged 4,100 and Roman versus Sheamus had 16 live events and they did 4,600. Maybe among those three, I might say Roman versus Sheamus on the Raw brand did better than the other two. That might be my takeaway. It was not meant to be a, you know, this is way better, this is more important. What you find is when you start drilling down for a while, that's where Sami Zayn's name shows up. So Sami Zayn shows up as feud number like nine, Kevin Owens versus Sami Zayn. 12 live live events, 4,700. Well, yes, that is the very best. What is left out of that calculation is the fact that all those live events I looked at were three ways. And so it was really Kevin versus Sammy versus Dean. Now, there was examples where Dean versus Kevin didn't draw quite as well. So the Dean versus Kevin and the Dean versus Sammy individual stats are actually a little bit lower than the, the, um, than the Kevin versus Seth. I'm sorry, Kevin versus um, Sammy. But a lot of people just took this to be very simple. (laughs) And Dave very much decided to re-rank my list, not on the number of events people had, which was how I was ranking it, to kind of say, if you're all in the 30s, I think it's fair to compare you. If you're, you know, one person has five events and one has 30, I don't think it's fair to compare the drawing ability of those two things. And so people re-ranked it and kind of did it uh, uh, in a different order than I ever intended and then turned it into a big argument on Twitter. And I, 
at, at the time or just oh, now? at the time it was a huge one. Uh, NWO Wolf Pack for Life or whatever is a guy that I remember at the time started arguing with Dave incessantly about this. And when this tweet came up once again about is Sami Zayn a draw, he started the argument up again. And and rightfully so, bringing up, you know, hey, these were three ways. Hey, here's where Chris actually took out the Brock Lesnar data. Hey, here's where Dave just took this thing. And what I always point to is 99% of the people didn't actually look at the data set. They just, you know, took Dave's thing on it and didn't really look at it in terms of thinking, where did this come from? Who did the calculations? What were the pros and cons of it? And hey, that's normal. And the reason I never wrote an article on this is because I just – I didn't know whether or not I had the right methodology, to be really honest. To, to make strong conclusions. Yeah, like right. is it is the better methodology to say, okay, I'm going to break them into seasonal trends and then look at season one versus season two? Because I think it's appropriate for me to compare January to May every year. I think that's fine. I don't know if it's comparable to say what was January to May and then compare it to someone who was headlining from August to November. What I also took away from this is, my God, there's not a lot of people who are on top. And so you only have a few people that are going to be sitting in that top, top, top slot to compare against year over year. And a lot of times they're just running the same event in every city on that brand. And then you're almost arguing about what's the value of the brand, not what's the value of the people. And trying to distinguish one from the other is really tough. So did Sammy and Kevin do really well when they went to Montreal? Yes. And I think yeah. that was even a, a – that might have been one of the few singles events that they actually had where it's just the two of them. I think they did a three-way in 2016 with Seth Rollins, and I think they, they did have a one-on-one match that they put on last this year. Yeah. So, And I, I, I did look into this before we started recording, and I, th- I think it's something like the 2016 attendance is in the 7,000s. That's the number we get from the Observer. And then the one that they did this year, they ran in March of 2016 and 2017 in Montreal. So the one that they did, they did this year, I think, did a little better in the, in the 8,000 range. So, I mean, I, I think there's something there. I don't disagree that this Sami Zayn thing could be something. I disagree with the way people took a, a data set that said, let me compare 35. I think you can start by saying they're, they're, Owens and Zayn might be strong draws in Quebec. Yeah. And and the the fact that people were comparing, you know, a Roman Reigns where he's doing 30-some live events um, or – yeah, where he's doing at least 16 live events versus, you know, sometimes people that are doing a lot less. Uh, you know, should I really say that Big Show versus Luke Harper with one live event doing a 3,500 tag was a bad main event? I don't know. You know, this data is clearly not perfect in the fact that I have AJ Styles versus Chris Jericho, one live event, one singles, zero attendance, which I think just meant I, I didn't have an attendance number for that one, so I would have left it blank. But uh, it, it's pretty clear I wasn't cleaning this data set extensively, and I never was trying to re-rank it based on average attendance because I thought that was not a fair factor. So, yeah. And so when so the thing that I've I've tried to do when we look at house show attendances to see if there's anybody who stands out is like you're, like you're saying I don't think it's really fair to just broadly look at average attendance because everybody's going to different markets. So what I've tried to do is do a market-to-market analysis and take a given attendance and compare it to attendances in the same city and see if it's better or worse than the last time. So can you click on this this link that I just put in the doc for this spreadsheet? Sure, sure. Let me uh... – So since we're just talking about – I told you before we started recording, I, I, since, since we're just doing 2016, I think I can look at this, but I couldn't look at it. We don't have the data ready to look at 2017, but you look at the individuals tab on this – and I guess if, if you're if you're a patron of, of WrestleNomics Radio, you can 
get a link to this spreadsheet we're about to talk about briefly, but you could look at the individuals tab and I've got it uh, averaged out basically looking at non-Cena house shows, which I think is the cleanest way to look at it because Cena creates this halo effect. So just sorting by non-Cena uh, house show performances in terms of attendance from 2012 to 2015, and you compare how each individual did uh, versus the average. And this does not this that, does not um, look at main event. This looks at just being there, period, right? Right, which I think is more appropriate because that's the thing that's advertised the most. The matches, for the most part, in my as far as I know, are not advertised. Yeah. But who's going to be there? But is, you, what I also just meant by that is that there's that weird halo effect of when Damien Sandow is hanging out with The Miz, then exactly. The Miz is probably the star and Damien is, is just kind of along for the ride versus, you know, when Triple H is there, it probably doesn't make a difference. But the, I don't think these are big meaningful differences. But if we look at Roman Reigns here, he's a he's a plus four uh, percent versus you know market to market on non Cena comparisons, and Sami Zayn is way down here at, at like zero percent. So they basically no difference. And I, and I think these differences of like zero percent or four percent are not significant enough for me to tell you that it's not just a, a you know. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.